you're a student and you got, you know, 20 hours, 25 hours behind you and you're shitting a solid gold brick because you don't know where you are. <laughs> Stressful. You know, I mean, that's essentially what happened when I was coming into Bridgeport. They're like, you're not coming into Bridgeport, dude. You're you're <laughs> probably over in New London. I'm like, oh, yeah. So just tell me how to get to Bridgeport. I said I was a student pilot. I didn't I was lost. I didn't know where I was. You got to admit it. You yeah, don't yeah. want to admit it. At that point, it, it, the pride has to go out the window or you're right. going to be in bigger trouble. I landed just... in Bridgeport and, you know, got a, ba- went, got a Coke and went to the bathroom and said, man, I'll come home now. basement podcast where your hosts dylan and joe off of the atlantic coast i'm about 220 miles away from where our subject takes place today the corner just taking a special field trip for this podcast down to the absolute corner of what's known as the devil's triangle or bermuda triangle that's absolutely right. Today we're talking about the Bermuda Triangle, that section of the Atlantic Ocean that is mysteriously claimed so many ships and planes and not just claimed them, but have left them gone without a trace, almost as if they vanished off the face of the earth. And it's led people to speculate many things uh, about the triangle and what is it about? Is it actually doing this and making people disappeared? Is it just an awful weather phenomenon that happens there? And unlike a lot of other uh, disappearing ships and planes around the world, uh, the explanations aren't nearly as vivid as those. A lot of times we don't really know what happens. And today we're going to go into a couple of those cases and try to figure out what is the Bermuda Triangle? What's actually going on there? Yeah, so about the Bermuda Triangle, we've got an area that runs from uh, Bermuda down to Puerto Rico and uh, over to the west to uh, right about Miami. Right, that makes that triangle shape. A triangle that's about 500. It's really speculation depending on what you read. Mm -hmm. But the uh, surface area of that, um, or just let's just say the area of that triangle is about 500,000 miles. Yeah, I found a couple of different uh, variations of it, but that seemed to be the most consistent one. Some people uh, imagine it's larger than it is, uh, but not a whole lot of people think it's smaller than that. I think that's the most common one. 500,000 square miles of open ocean. Open ocean where there's been uh let's just say thousands of life life's lost and it absolutely it actually isn't that big compared to the rest of the ocean true uh as far as the actual disappeared um ships and planes go i found the, the the closest estimate people can find is about 50 ships and 20 planes that have completely disappeared that's not counting the thousands of shipwrecks and plane crashes that have been well documented going down a lot of times um, we'll, we'll find out as we talk about it people just don't know what happened to these people unlike most um, naval disasters where unfortunately because of the way communication works we have a very detailed uh picture of what actually happened for these cases the bermuda triangle we really don't it's it's about trying to piece the, together what happened and speculation afterwards with what possibly could have occurred but ultimately it's just an educated guess for the most of them yeah, and like Joe said, I mean, it's really important to emphasize that a handful of these things are literally fell off the face of the earth. There are no mm-hmm. traces of them. Not a trace. Um, not a trace. Some of them there are. Um, as yeah. mentioned, there are some that there were 
they, they were just crashed and burned basically and there was right. evidence or shipwrecks or, or or debris or something like that but there is a good chunk of them that are just completely still uh not found for over 100 years if not more. absolutely and i think it is important to mention even though that the bermuda triangle is so mysterious the part of the world it's in is just famous for violent weather i mean it's right in hurricane alley tropical storms and hurricanes hit that section of the atlantic ocean every year multiple times obviously sometimes they're stronger than others some years are worse than others but that kind of violent storms happening in the air and in the ocean uh, is a recipe for disaster when it comes to even the most experienced uh, naval captains and pilots. It's tough to fly out there. I wouldn't recommend anyone who's a, a novice at either uh, tried the Bermuda Triangle for their first flight. Not recommended. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, not, not recommended. Um, not at all. Yeah. So, Another thing I found out about it is that I had no idea about this beforehand. So we all know the Marianas Trench is the deepest point in the ocean. That's actually in the Pacific Ocean, I believe. But the deepest point in the Atlantic Ocean, as far as we know, is called the Milwaukee Depth. And that is located inside the Bermuda Triangle. So the deepest point in the Atlantic Ocean is actually within the area of that triangle. And it's 27,493 feet deep. That is deep. Repeat that again. How deep is it? 23,000, uh, sorry, 27,493 feet down. That's, that's very deep. That's it's really miles and miles deep. Yeah. That's as, that's the cruising altitude of, of the airliner that you took to Florida. Holy shit. So that, yeah, that's a perfect way to picture it. So how high up you were, that's how far down that particular part of the ocean goes, which I think is an interesting fact for the triangle and might lead to why some of these things are never found again because getting down there is near impossible as we know the marianas trench is one of the least explored places on the entire planet and i imagine the milwaukee depth be pretty high up on the list of uh unknowns as far as that goes yeah, that's very difficult to look in there that's insane so there's that um another you know this is another weird thing there is that there's you know evidence of lost civilizations like speculating um you know that could cause a lot of problems like the bimini road um which is in uh i believe that's in bahamas oh Maybe. the whole thing i is don't know the, i haven't heard of it yeah bimini road road is looks like a paved road of of gigantic blocks the size of the pyramid blocks damn um that are, are they as big as the ones in gigantia or they couldn't be those are huge uh, they're pretty big, man. I got I to look it up. But they look very man-made, and it's like a road made of stone under, you know, under the ocean. Um, wow. Cool. Under the sea, as they say. Under the sea. That is very odd. Yeah, so um, so we've got some famous examples that we want to do some storytelling for you guys. Yeah. Of, of Let's look at the actual stories that uh, have led to this, you know, reputation. The Bermuda Triangle it's not just one or two cases it's a bunch of them and we picked out a couple of them that are the more famous ones to highlight uh what is the Bermuda Triangle yeah so we've got we've got missing ships missing planes and then one land incidents that's really funny <laughs> yeah Just about land uh, ships and planes here because that's what everyone knows mm -hmm. but little does anybody know right that in 1969 in bimini bahama near the bimini road uh there's the mm. great isaac lighthouse who's ever heard of that not me um not isaac 
there was once upon a time in 1969, two lighthouse keepers, just like in the movie, the lighthouse, very similar type mm-hmm. of people. Um, and, uh, the weather's a little bit nicer. I imagine most of the year though, <laughs> you don't have to wear a wool coat for half yeah. the year when you're in the Bahama lighthouse. Yeah. And I don't know what the seabird situation is at, mm. uh, in, in Bahamas. Um, but I, I, I do know that was a big problem in the movie. Um, the lighthouse. lighthouse. Yeah. Seabirds were always up to no good and, and, uh, people being sexually frustrated, probably mm-hmm. still a case here. And this could have been a case of that. Maybe someone would like to check. I don't know how many sirens live down there that can, uh, seduce you and drag you into the depths of the ocean. I don't know, but I can't say a yeah, siren would get me in the ocean. If you're imagine being stuck on a boat for years or months or whatever it is. And then there's all this rock full of attractive women. Uh, yeah, if I don't have a Madame de Voyage, you better believe I'm diving in uh, with those mermaids. Yeah. I'd be like, yeah, all right. They, they have beautiful voices, so they're like singing to you, and they're just on this rock calling your name. I'd be like, <laughs> yeah. it's a no-brainer. Just you gotta go. On. Let me just park this thing. <laughs> yeah, let me just you know, I'll I'll be careful. I have to I have to check it out though. I'd be let stupid me just not park to park this thing real quick. Get the old boat out there. I'll be right over there. <laughs> yeah, we'll be right back. <laughs> I wouldn't die. I wouldn't. It's fine. So what happened there in 1969? I, I'm not aware of this. Um, the story is quite simple. And uh, the story, is, I wish I had more to elaborate on, but uh, one day they were there, one day they were not. In so people went to go check on the lighthouse and those two keepers had vanished without a trace. Where to be found. Ah, in the Bermuda Triangle, they were gone. Yeah, we'll find out. Like you said, a lot for these stories, it's not just the fact that people um, die or crash; is that they there's no trace of them. We have no idea what happened to them whatsoever. And it sounds like those two guys um, went off and disappeared. I mean, I like to think there's probably a happier version of the story where they fell in love and people wouldn't understand, so they had to run off together. But it's probably something more uh, dark than that. If there's no trace of them whatsoever. Yeah, you know? who knows? But they're gone. So. That's our land story. I got no other land. Did you get any land stories, Joe? About? I like that. No, I didn't even know there was a land story. I'm glad you brought that, that one up. Yep. Just nowhere nowhere to be safe in the Bermuda Triangle, not even on solid ground. Nope. Can't be safe. Can't be safe. So um, so we've got some other, other stories you may or may not have heard of, and probably definitely one of them you have. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Joe, where do you want to start with this? I mean, I think that may be a good idea um, just chronologically. Um, we can start with the first account of this ever showing up uh, in the books. You, know, I'm gonna get out you, here. you read my rind as far as the chronology goes. I was going to start with um, the earlier stories of Bermuda Triangle are um, before flight was so common that you'd be having planes flying over there constantly. My story starts in 1918. Is your story before that? My story starts in 1492. Oh, how could I forget to add this one in? Let's start with 1492 because that's the longest ago that this has ever uh, been you know, documented of something happening in Bermuda Triangle. And I think people might remember this one, even if you just heard the year, it reminds you of something. So please exactly. uh, take it away. In 1492, Christopher Columbus went out and sailed the ocean blue. Is that the He sure Columbus? did. He sure did. You know, did. For, for as reviled we think that Columbus is and how much we disrespect the guy, he sure does come up a lot on the podcast, though, because he's just a famous figure, whether you like it or not. Yeah, our Spanish friend made his way over to the Bermuda Triangle. Well, our, our Italian friend that was financed by Spain because Italy would not uh, finance his journey. They thought they thought uh, we're not going to pay for Columbus, you. Spanish or Italian. Well, he's Italian. I mean, Italian heritage uh, all over America, for example. I don't know how they feel about him in Italy, but the festivals in New York and in Providence, they're big time. The Columbus Day is a big Italian festival and they love him. They claim him as one of their own sons. It's the man who 
discovered the new world and he's Italian. Sure, he was sailing a Spanish ship under the auspices of Queen uh, Isabella of Spain, but he's an Italian guy and they claim him as their own. Columbus is an Italian guy. Yep. Yeah, didn't know that. So, so I thought he was Spanish. Um, I think almost everyone he sailed with was Spanish, though, because they were all Spanish ships. He was ships. on the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So, 1492, uh, the day before he found the New World, um, he was somewhere off the coast of Bermuda, right? Mm-hmm. Or Bahamas, one of the two. I always forget. Um, I, I, would say, I would imagine it'd be more than Bahamas because I think he ended up in the before, Caribbean. Yeah, so, you'd think it's out. more south. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but yeah, I think right. that's what it was. Um, uh, in his journal, this is this is a fact. This isn't a like speculation translation thing. Like this is a fact. Yeah. He saw multiple lights um, in the sky for a while, going in and out of the water. And there's nothing that you can't explain that. And he, I think he described them as lanterns because they didn't have uh, LEDs. right. Yeah, they didn't think it was LEDs. Yeah, um, but he saw lights going in and out of the water in the Bermuda Triangle. You know, in the late 1400s. That's the first time this ever showed up in writing that we know of, besides yeah. the fact that the Native Americans um, and the Native people in Native South Bahamians America, or Native Yeah, Caribbean. exactly. They had plenty of stories of like, hey, we this is a thing. Like, they're the gods, as mm. always. They're the gods. But that's been a thing for a while. But overall, in modern history, um, as far as America goes, um, Christopher Columbus, first dude to break the fucking seal of this one. <laughs> Pop that puppy wide open, didn't he? <laughs> And the floodgates did open after that because we have so many tales of it happening. Like I said, we're just highlighting a couple of them that are the more famous ones. But if you look up a list of incidents in the Bermuda Triangle, it, it's you scroll for an hour. I mean, it's just so many uh, situations of happening. And those are just the ones, like we said, that are unexplained. If you go on just the registered shipwrecks or plane crashes, the list gets longer and longer. So it, it gets ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. Gonna... You, can, you can go you know, Google what you want right now and see what comes up and you'll get about a thousand different or actually less, um, but if you actually pull up shipwreck maps, it's yeah, exactly wild, right? Yeah, um, all the way to you know U-boats sinking American vessels in the Bermuda Triangle, like everything, you name it. Um, crazy stories about that we're not going into, but there's there's a, crazy, a wild place to try. Wild story of a U-boat sinking a ship within visual distance of Miami Beach. I mean, like that's crazy. Oh yeah, it's insane. And, and uh, everyone on Miami is just trying to have a beer, and they're like, "That's a U-boat actually shooting upon an American vessel." And they heard it, saw the whole thing. Way too close for comfort at that point. Way too close for comfort when the Germans are actually in visual distance. Um, yeah. But th- just the whole that whole part of the ocean has a lot more sunken ships than than you can Google. Mm-hmm. So I was going to start off with um, one of the earliest ones that's documented after. Um, Columbus and when the country of the United States has already been established for some time. And my story starts in 1918. Let it rip. I know where you're going. Yes, please. This is the uh, disappearance of the ship, the USS Cyclops, which is a fucking badass name for a ship. I really like it. God damn. I wish I was on the USS Cyclops. Oh, I wish it was on it before this particular name. incident. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Real cool. So we're going back to March 4th, 1918. And, uh, the USS Cyclops was a, was a part of the United States Navy, but it, was, it wasn't a battleship. It was actually a cargo ship. So they would ship out large amounts of materials, and it was stationed down in the Bermuda Triangle before people really called it that. Um, so it was carrying a load of manganese ore, uh, which is a pretty rare metal to be using around. You can use it for all different kinds of substances. And the last we know, it had contact and let the, uh, the folks on the land know that they had one engine running, 
So they already had a, a kind of hobbled chip and they had it full up with manganese. And it was a crew of 309 men on board, 309 Navy men. And on that day, March 4th, it could have happened after it or it could happen on that day. But March 4th is the last known contact we ever had with those people. And the ship, like we said, disappeared with no trace. There was no shipwreck. There was no um, bodies found. There was no debris. None of that manganese ores ever found again. And that ship disappeared without a trace, making it the largest loss of life in any U.S. naval event in history outside of combat. So anytime that someone was actually not engaged in a naval warfare, they never lost this many people before. They went gone without a trace. 309 souls uh, just gone. We have no idea where they are to this day. And that's the, the one of the earliest um, recorded in modern history events of the Bermuda Triangle claiming lives. And that is just such a massive ship to go missing with so many people on board. You'd think that some kind of evidence or scraps behind would come up or someone would, you know, be left behind. But no, the whole ship with the cargo and all 309 men gone out of trace. Or even to this day, you know, people are scanning the ocean like crazy now because they can finally have the technology to find Right, them. now we can look down there. Right? Nothing's shown up about the Cyclops. We're still waiting on it. Yeah. Um, I thought an interesting tag on that story was that it also had two sister ships. A lot of the times when they commission a ship, they'll commission ships that are built very similarly. They call them sister ships. The two sister ships um, did not have as cool a name as the Cyclops. They were called. Ask. Yeah, they were called the Proteus and the Nereus. Uh, which I guess they're probably also Greek names, but Cyclops yeah. is the coolest one. Um, and they were, they were, like I said, they were also cargo ships, and they uh, lasted much longer after 1918. But during World War II, both of those ships also went missing in the Bermuda Triangle, and we still don't have any uh, evidence of what happened. No shipwrecks, as far as we know. But it's weirdly enough that what not only the ship, the Cyclops, but years later, it, both of his sister ships went missing in the same section of the world, doing the same job, hauling a bunch of metal around the, uh, the Caribbean Sea into the Bermuda Triangle in the Atlantic. Just pretty wild stuff that, that would happen multiple times to the same kind of ship. Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't know that it had sister ships. I just read about the Cyclops. Yeah. We had a weird one. Mm-hmm. This is kind of, it's similar to my lighthouse story. Um, it's also similar to... Uh, yeah, let's go back and forth. Yeah, the Ellen Austin story. I like this one a lot. Um, this one uh, is not uh, have such a crazy name. I got. I do have another crazy name one, but this one's a brief one too. Before we get into mm -hmm. the uh, the heavyweight title of the of the uh, Bermuda Triangle stories, we got a couple of interesting Undisputed ones that chant. I think maybe you guys haven't heard of. And if you you know listen to the pod in the shower, on the toilet, in the car, at work, mm -hmm. sleeping, whatever it is, these are just fun bedtime stories. Let's hear it. Once upon a time, in 1872, on the 4th of December, there was a ship called the Mary Celeste that had nobody on it. And this, it did not not have nobody on it when it left port. So this is possibly, well, I mean, in my mind, one of the most mysterious stories of shipwrecks ever, and it obviously happens in Premier Triangle. Mm -hmm. um, so... So... There was a ship discovered on the 4th of December in 1872 with everything right in place. Everything, like food hot type of story, cigarettes still lit. No um, way. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and everything was in place except the people. The whole crew was gone. 
Um, there lies the problem, right? If if everything was fine, they'd still be smoking those cigarettes. But where are all the crew? That's the right? big, what's going on here? Exactly. Um, it was it was found straight on the sea days after it started its journey from New York um, to Italy. So there were seven crew members along with Captain Benjamin Briggs. Oh, that's wife. a good fucking sea captain name. It's like you're born to be a sea captain. Captain Briggs, his wife and their two put him in the brig. So says Captain Briggs. Exactly. His wife and their two-year-old daughter. Oh, that's the sad. vessel was loaded with raw alcohol, whatever that means. Have you ever had raw alcohol? I don't think so. Oh, I have to imagine raw. <laughs> yeah, nice uh, uncut, uncut alcohol. Yeah, I, I, I imagine that'd be like a uh, grain alcohol or moonshine or something. I, I don't know. I think moonshine's the best example of what I think raw alcohol is like. Yeah, just, probably just, just grains that are fermented into pure, clear alcohol. Yeah. Yep. yep. So, um, so when passing a British ship before this all happened, when passing a British ship called the De Gracia, um, it found Mary Celeste under partial sail in the Atlantic, off of the Azores. So it's weird because this is a Bermuda Triangle story, mm-hmm. but, it, but it's happening over in uh, Europe almost. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, and it was mentioned in the top Bermuda Triangle stories because it is related. So, don't mm-hmm. get well, I, it, it is worth mentioning that um, a lot of people consider the Bermuda Triangle, like we said, a lot larger than it is, and some people actually expand it out to its point traveling almost across the Atlantic Ocean. So it gets more narrower as it goes, but. Like we said, most accounts will have it be 500,000 square miles, but we have ones that go up to two, three million square miles if you believe that that's larger than that, which that might be one of those cases there where people think the triangle doesn't end at Bermuda. It, it goes along the Atlantic Ocean along the same thing. So maybe that's what it is. Yeah, it's kind of where we're going here. So, um, and, and a big a part of the reason that might be is the fact that uh, Magnetic North uh, increases 35 miles every year, mm. every year. Every year, and that is an important part of um, a little bit like navigating west or northeast or whatever it is. Um, and it's not in Russia yet, but it'll eventually will be in the next couple of years. Yeah, um, it's, it's heading south, it changes every year 35 miles. That's no joke. That's so, huge. Um, yeah, so they found uh, you know, this 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 uh, British ship found the Mary Celeste under yeah. partial partial sail, not no sail, not full sail, just uh, right half sail. Um, nobody on it, and the lifeboat was also missing. Um, Interesting. It was also found that nine of the barrels of the cargo were empty and there was a sword on deck. No trace mm. of people were ever found or the lifeboat or anything. Um, That's an interesting one. Because yes, uh, the first weird. thing you would think would be uh, would be pirates uh, raiding it maybe and yeah. taking the cargo on board. But if, you, if, it's, um, if the ship's otherwise undisturbed and you don't actually end up finding the people, that, that leads to more questions than it answers. Yeah, so exactly. So like you have, um, yeah, the pirate theory, but the barrels were empty, not stolen. So if you're, unless mm. they got on board and drank nine barrels of grain alcohol, which is. Uh, if they drank nine barrels of grain alcohol, you'd find their bodies still on the board of the ship. I'd imagine. I don't yeah, think they were going to make it off the ship. A mess, but it was, it was in good shape. Wow. Um, uh, there was a perfectly skilled crew on a good weather day. Yeah. Um, and an uncompromised ship that was still like moving. Like there was no, so it wasn't like it was just a ghost ship with the sails up and like, you know, whole mm-hmm. thing. So that's, that's a weird one is that you just have a completely abandoned ship. Um, everybody's missing. 
and, and there's no, no there's nothing wrong with it so why would they take a boat to go escape this type of thing so that's another yeah. one from Brianna. and the barrels of moonshine or or the pure what is it called raw alcohol are empty uh, but alcohol. they're not stolen yeah, yeah. and I, I imagine you would be able to tell if they emptied it out onto the deck of the ship because the whole thing would be a, a powder keg for lack of a better word and it would all smell like you know pure alcohol and probably be easily combustible i don't think you can empty that all out onto the deck of a boat and have people not notice it even afterwards yeah exactly exactly I so, what stories you guys so that leads me to the uh, the carol a deering which is not as cool the name of cyclops but it's another like you know person's name for the ship this one happens in january 31st 1921 so only uh three years after the disappearance of the uss cyclops this one is kind of an older boat, though. It was commissioned before the Cyclops was built because it's a five-masted schooner. So it's one of those older wooden ships um, that still is in place for years and years afterwards. You know, we, we already talked about in the past that unlike maybe pedestrian cars, when they build these ships, they're so massive and expensive. As long as they still work, you keep using them. And ships are in service for much longer after than planes or cars or other modes of transportation. This one was a five-masted schooner, and it wasn't disappear without a trace they did find the ship much like the story you just told they found it run aground and much like the story you just told as well no trace of anyone on board no um, structural damage to the sails of the ship besides the fact that it had run aground and they couldn't find what happened to anyone on board the ship or any trace of where they might have gone or why they were running aground in the first place so you, you'd imagine there'd be more evidence there but they found the ship totally intact run aground not a soul on board and no one knows what happened to any of them. It's a crazy story. So it's just the same theme over and over again that they, exactly. if the boats aren't sunk, there's just nobody there. It's like these people vanished in midair. Right. And uh, it's another story from 1881 about the Ellen Austin, a white oak schooner. Um, another schooner. Yeah, 210 foot long uh, schooner, the Ellen Austin, which is uh, 210 feet is how many gorillas? <laughs> how many gorillas long is well so it'd be about 20 gorillas to 100 feet so it'd be about 40 gorillas and maybe a, a spider monkey well let's just say let's just say gorillas are 10 feet tall they're not they're not we found out they're they're, they're, they're gorillas, less right? than six feet tall they're yeah, they're five foot and change um Shit, really? so uh, we even round it up to six feet that that would be yeah around, around 35 to 40 gorillas long, long. that's a that's how big yeah. the ship is here yeah. big ship man 35 gorillas long mm-hmm from uh from toe to to head <laughs> toe to head they don't have tails so i couldn't say toe to tail wow that's crazy so so, so that was a similar thing what would happen to that ship? yeah dude these stories are all the same and i got one more after this too um all oh, right on ellen austin another boring ass name that's not the cyclops but yeah but they seem like woman's name everybody names. for my next story because it does have a cool name mm -hmm. um so and i hope that you have the same one i hope you found it joe um no Oh. I don't have any more. I don't have any cool names left. Oh, I so. got a cool name one after this, which is why you maybe shouldn't name your boat this name. But we'll that. <laughs> um, uh, all right, well, we're hopping. We're hopping the timeline between back and forth, but I'll, I'll be able to put the the dates up so people can keep track a of it. A little bit, yeah, but you know, it's just how. It but goes. it doesn't matter because, like you said, it's the same theme. This just keeps happening over and over and over again, and it happened a hundred years earlier and a hundred years after. It's wild shit. Yeah. The next one I have is um. Oh, hang on. I'm still up. I'm still there. Hang on. Hang oh, on. I'm sorry about that. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, no, it's all good. So, 1881. 21 or sorry 50 gorillas long ellen austin oh right right yeah we're at 50 gorillas <laughs> from new york to london and okay decided to stumble upon a derelict uh within the bermuda triangle 
for some reason. What hmm. does that mean? Uh, derelict ship? Uh, no, no, no. She stumbled upon a derelict near the Bermuda Triangle. Um, I, I would usually picture a derelict means someone who's like, um, a, like a, a like a, a homeless person back in the day. It's like they're 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 street people. They live outside. Like, oh, look at this derelict. He he's up to no good. He's a ruffian. He's a hoodlum. He really doesn't have um, any place to call home. And uh, that can also be used for things like ships, where ships the derelict ship would be like a ship that was um, abandoned and uh, had no one. Uh, running it in order so maybe to be. the story maybe so i maybe i re i misread the story maybe okay. that ellen austin found a derelict ship oh okay so the derelict ship wasn't actually the ellen austin they're the ones who came upon it that that, that makes sense based off of what i'm reading right now that doesn't it, it seems to not make any sense but i think that's what i thought the ellen austin was the ship that they found that was missing. Oh, I, I think that ellen mm -hmm. austin found a ship so uh, mm -hmm. so here's the story so um so let's just say that there is a the, the, this boat stumbled upon a derelict ship near the Bermuda Triangle. Everything yeah. seemed fine with the with the schooner because it sounds like they're both schooners. That's why I got confused because like the Ellen sure. Austin is definitely um, is definitely an oak schooner, and they also found another schooner mm. um, drifting just north of the Sargasso Sea. Everything was cool, but there was a missing crew. So Captain Baker of the Ellen Austin asked to observe the derelict for two days just to make sure that this isn't some sort of pirate trap. Or huh, right, right. You think it maybe it's like a bait like ship. A, basically, Captain Baker found this like abandoned boat in the middle of the ocean. Um, and and his first thought was, all right, this is a trap. Let's not mm -hmm. go up to this boat. Right. right. Um, and he waited two days just to see if there's any movement on there or whatever it is, because this is probably a typical move from pirates or whatever it is, um, nothing happened. No response, no people, no whatever it is. Um, so Captain Baker uh, entered the uh, entered this abandoned ship. Yeah. And uh, and he found this ship uh, well packed, stocked to the stopped to the brigs um, with all sorts of things and just Damn. absolutely no crew at all. So um, so the, the craziest thing about this is kind of funny. It's not funny, but it is funny. He um, uh, he decided to tow this derelict vessel back with ah. him to a port. Um, and he's got all that cargo at the, at the very least. From yeah, yeah, it's worth it. You know, hey, we got a boat out here. Let's tow it in. Um, and he placed like half of his crew on the ship, and they were like ah. prized, prized, good, good folks, good, good crew. Um, so they set sail together. And after two days of sail on calm water, um, the boat separated path. Um, and then the boat vanished again. <laughs> no, oh, it almost made it back out. It almost made it back with the legit crew on there. That he yeah, started. yeah. He, you know, he he knew that crew personally, and then they go missing too. You got to be kidding me. Yeah, yeah. God so, damn. Um, so so it looks like uh, so then it it, it, it vanished, and they, they kind of spotted again. They caught back up with it, and they went back, and they eventually got up to it, kind of attached themselves to it, and. Uh, and uh, Captain Baker went on there, and there was no his crew was gone, completely, completely gone. Crew's gone, wow. nobody's on board again. And he's like, "What in the fuck is the deal with this thing?" That's so, crazy. Here I am thinking the stories they found in the derelict ship, but then the disappearance happens once again. Yes, the people disappeared again. What the hell? Same thing. It's the same story. Originally, they find a boat that has nobody on it, and yeah. then he, puts, he puts his own crew on there and says, "Hey, you guys are skilled. 
Say, right. Let's bring this bitch back. And yeah, um, and they're gone again. So wow. and there's no no chance of unraveling the story. Um, no. How weird is that? You find a boat, you put people on it, and then they, those people all go missing. Sounds like a cursed ship to me. Cursed ghost vessel. Yeah, you shouldn't have taken it. Should have left it be. I think so too. You can say that now, hindsight being 2020, but I would try to do the same thing. Let's take this thing back to port. Free cargo. Mm-hmm. Not a pirate trap. Let's take it. Yep, exactly. So I got one more story about boats. Okay. So- well, my next one is about uh, the first ship that we have on this list. That is, I think, no, besides the first one you said, but it's just a, a passenger, a civilian ship. It's not a large ship and it's not like a cargo vessel for the Navy. It's just actually a, a personal pleasure yacht. And this one takes place in December 28th, 1948. Bring it on. What do we got? We got a pleasure yacht in 1948, right after the war. People had money. They were just trying to... Help. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, mis- I'm mistaken. Th- this one takes place in uh, 19 September 26, 1955. So this is a while after World War II. Well, but we got money. We got money. We got, we got money. We got money. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, this one's a 1955, rather. And uh, it's called the, the Connemara 4. So I'd have to imagine it's probably... Connemara? Connemara, all one word. Hmm. And uh, you have to imagine there was probably three Connemaras before this one, but I don't know if they ever deserved the fate that this one had. So this one, like I said, was a, it was a personal yacht. So the crew is a very small crew, only about a handful of people on board and someone who's probably very wealthy. I didn't get the person's name in particular. Um, but the, this yacht was found adrift in the Bermuda Triangle, so much like the schooner you're talking about, it's floating away, um, no particular damage to the ship, but there's no one on board. And when it set sail, obviously, it had a, a fully stacked crew and the captain on board. But when they found it, no crew to be had. Uh, people investigated the ship. And the only thing they could think beforehand is that there was a hurricane called Hurricane Ioni. It happened one week prior. Um, but that happened a week ago. And they found the ship a week later, um, like I said, sailing with no crew, just drifting off on its own. And they speculated that perhaps the crew had died during the hurricane, but if that was the case, you would think the ship would go down with them. It's almost like it swept all the people off the deck and they went and drowned at the Davy Jones locker, but they really still don't know to this day um, the cause of uh, the disappearance of the people. They, they did find the ship in well-sailing condition, sailing perfectly well on its own, floating in the Bermuda Triangle, no one on board, and it was just a uh, personal yacht. That's crazy. It's yeah. just so weird. I mean, like, what's the deal with this? People don't just like just several people just go flying off boats. It's just of course, and of course, I mean, now we're much better at you know understanding forensic science and trying to figure out uh, working back from you know Z to A and figuring out what happened there. Uh, but as you get more and more towards the modern times, it just seems stranger and stranger that they couldn't find one trace or one idea of what could have happened. It just almost like they up and popped off the face of the earth, like you said, they up and vanished. So I got I got a story. That's the, it's it's kind of one I got a one upper in this one. Please. We've got a priest. A priest. Oh, <laughs> well, let me get my uh, my my priest costume. We'll be right back. Yeah, yeah. All right. We're waiting for Joe's priest costume. I didn't bring it to Florida with me. We've got a priest on a boat called the Witchcraft. <laughs> I'm not kidding. This is a true story. <laughs> the Witchcraft and a priest on board. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like some real life irony. Dan Burak, famous captain of the 23 foot boat called the Witchcraft, 
brings his friend Father Patrick Hogan for a ride to go look at Christmas. Oh, uh, that's a priest name if I ever heard one. And Father Patrick Hogan. Story. So, December 22nd, 1967, yeah. Captain Dan Barak, a.k.a. just a guy with a boat, <laughs> no one's yeah. has a 23-foot, uh, a.k.a. Uh, three to four gorillas long <laughs> luxury yacht. And he says to his buddy, Father Patrick Horgan, let's go look at the famous Christmas lights off the coast of Miami on my boat at night. Mm, a little pleasure cruise, some sightseeing. Pleasure cruise to go look at Christmas lights with your friend the priest off the coast of Miami. Sounds romantic. Romantic day. I hope everything went well for them. All is good. Um, all is great until the Coast Guard received a call from the captain saying that, hey, it's Captain Dan Burek. We hit something, but it's fine. It's not a big deal. Like, it's mm -hmm. literally nothing. We're um, fine. Yeah, like, it's just letting you know we hit something, but so far, like, no water, no damage, like, pretty pretty low-key. We don't know what we hit, but, but it's all good. Um, but I, I think I might need help uh, being towed to shore, something like that. Sure. So just, you know, you can't be too safe kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the Coast Guard made it to his location in 19 minutes and nothing was there. And that's 19 it. minutes? You couldn't get there much faster than that. That's, that's, that's pretty fast. fast. Yeah. I mean, call 911 to your house and 19 minutes is a good time. Yeah, you hope that it's that quick for sure. Yeah. So the area uh, with the location was completely deserted. No signs of shit. Um, nothing stranded, nothing there previously, no floating debris, no nothing. Yeah. Um, and specifically the type of boat that they had was virtually unsinkable, um, really? based off of the way that it was designed. Um, and, and like a billion different life-saving de devices, life jackets, lifeboats, flares, distress, distress signals, etc. Um, no trace. nothing was used. The ship was gone. They searched hundreds of square miles uh, of the ocean over the next few days. Nothing came wow. up. Nothing's been found ever I mean, to this day. Ship's gone. Priest is gone. Guy's gone. The witchcraft is and no more. 19 minute notice for the Coast Guard to get there. They got there yeah. in 19 minutes. Nothing. That's such a fast response time. And that really is a common theme to these disappearances, which is that the last known contact is usually something that's so mundane and everything's all well and good. It's not that they're distressed SOS, you know, shooting flares up and throwing out the life vests. It really is just a, we're all good. Just letting you know where we are. And then next minute they come right. by and no trace of them. It's so odd. Nothing. So that's what I got for boats. For sure. I have two more on my list. And the first one I want to talk about, uh, before we get into the heavy hitter, um, is the first plane I'm talking about, and that's the that's the one that actually happened in December 28, 1948. So it's previous to the uh, the last one, but it's the first plane. And this plane's a Douglas DC three, and it's uh, flight number NC one six double zero two. And once you know it, doesn't go well for them in the same version. So on December 28, 1948, it disappeared on a flight from Puerto Rico to Miami. So they're really just threading the needle of the Bermuda Triangle there, going from Puerto Rico, one point of the triangle, to Miami, which is basically the other point on the lower okay. end. 20 minutes and again, no, uh, no distress radio calls. Um, the flight left on time. They didn't have any inclement weather that they would um, particularly be nervous about or be shooting back and forth transmissions. And wouldn't you know it, 32 people on board, 
and the plane, like we said, vanished. They have no trace of the plane going down, no distress signals, no evidence of any people uh, dead in the ocean, and they just gone without a trace. They actually sent out the Civil Aeronautics Board to investigate it because when a flight like that goes down, you have to try to figure out what happened and you know, determine why the accident happened, make sure it doesn't happen again. When they went out there, like you said, they looked high and low all over the ocean. They tried to track the flight path or its projected flight path, and they found no trace of it, and they could find no cause for the disappearance whatsoever. Another question mark. Another question mark. Um, identical story from 1948. Uh, an Avro Tudor uh, Star Tiger um, had six crewed, 27 passengers from uh, the Azores to Kinley Field in Bermuda. Same mm-hmm. thing. Gone. No trace. That's interesting because that's the top end of the triangle and the other story is the bottom end of the triangle. The very same year, two flights with about the same amount of people yep. completely vanish. Yep. Crazy town. Um, nuts. Yeah, yeah, really weird. Um, actually, in August 28th, 1963, so it's more modern than the other one. So at this point, we have very sophisticated, you know, not, not as opposed to today. Compared to today, our, our technology is amazing. But 63 versus 1918 with the USS Cyclops. I mean, this is, we got, you know, advanced radar, radio signaling. We have um, all kinds of devices that can orient where you are. And this is actually two planes going missing, and they are some biggins. It's two KC-135 Stratotankers. So these are those giant planes that fly in the sky, and their job is to refuel smaller planes mid-flight. So they are just full of fuel and they're big honking things. And two of them go missing in the Bermuda Triangle the same day, August 28th. So the actual uh, events that happened there, as far as we know, is that these two stratotankers collided with each other in the Bermuda Triangle. So I don't know if they were flying too close, if there was an air traffic control issue, maybe miscommunication over radio transmission, maybe a lack of communication over radio transmission. Maybe there was a problem with the radio signals whatsoever, but they end up colliding into each other. And we only know that because we we found, like you said, like the other story, we found the wreck of it. There was some evidence of the wreck. There's not evidence of why it happened or why two well-trained USAF pilots and co-pilots were able to crash these giant planes into each other in Bermuda Triangle. And when the investigation was taken place, they claimed that actually um, one of the wrecks was 160 miles away from the other wreck. So they crashed into each other and yet ended up 160 miles apart, which is highly unlikely. Uh, you can drift a plane and glide it for a pretty long time with no gas, even if you have one engine. But if you crash it into another plane that big, you're not going to end up probably 160 miles away, maybe over the course of weeks at a time. And the way that the tides are drifting, I don't really know enough about that to know that. But it does seem pretty odd that that would happen. Now, the official United States Air Force reports that have been declassified do state that the second crash site was actually misidentified. Um, and it was really just a mass of seaweed and driftwood. And the people who had originally investigated thought that that was the second crash site, but they're mistaken. But... I don't know, man. That seems like a weird thing to mix up, especially if your job is to go look at it. And I'm not saying that the the U.S. Air Force is trying to make it seem less, you know, you know, or crazy or you know, unexplained or whatever. But it does seem odd to me that they would say, "Oh no, that was just driftwood. It wasn't a it wasn't a 
KC-135 Strato tanker. I mean, you really couldn't mix the two up if, if they are being honest about that because, you know, I had to look up how big it was because of our gorilla thing. I'm glad you brought it up. So, so this thing is a, is a fucking beast. They, a fully fueled up, meaning carrying fuel, KC-135 Strato tanker is 98,470 pounds. So that's even bigger than, than the planes we've talked about, uh, the C5 Galaxy on this podcast. And this thing weighs, um, I would say a ton, but it weighs multiple tons, nearly 100,000 pounds. It's wild. And it has a length of 136 feet. So that's not quite as big as uh, those schooners, but that's pretty big for an airplane flying around in the sky. So two of those hit each other and go missing the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, rather, they, they, they crash land in there. And then maybe they were separated by miles. We, we don't really know. But if you did want to uh, buy one of those things, I also looked up how much they cost. And it's only going to cost you a cool $35 uh, to $39 million, uh, depending on what year and what model you get. So pretty expensive accident. Two of those $39 million planes go crashing in the ocean because they collide with each other. That's a strange accident and a, definitely a fuck up if, if there wasn't something more to the story. Yeah, that's insane. And, and uh, two things. If you want to go see a KC-135, um, the the uh, New Hampshire Air National Guard is the east coast, north and east coast uh, hub for those guys. So All right. Air Force Base, where uh, our guest, special guest Doug uh, will be telling you about. <laughs> yeah, on. yeah. We're going to have a guest up later, so and he's going to mention that. Drive up and see KC-135s on the line all day there. Take them wow. off, take off and landing. Pretty sweet. Um, and uh, I mean, the amount of amount of technology and force you have to apply to get at something that weighs nearly 100,000 pounds up to that altitude it just blows my mind how the we crazy can... thing is the dry weight's probably significantly less uh gasoline right. let's just compare it to water water mm-hmm. weighs eight pounds a gallon um and gasoline these things are holding you know thousands of gallons of fuel to right yeah multiple, you know basically if you ever have a combat situation those are up in the air always just like the AWACS and other stuff so these guys are they've got fuel tankers up there aka the kc-135 for the air force and they're always in range, so they have to have enough gas for themselves, and they're burning. Yes, enough for themselves and to refuel multiple planes. Right? And, yeah, then have things going, and they refuel everything from stealth bombers to um, to helicopters to literally F-16s to other bombers, to other KC-135s, anything you want. Yeah, that's um, amazing. Those things are crazy. Yeah, so to have to have a communication error with two of those things hitting each other is just insane. I mean, what the hell? I mean, it's it's very crazy. Yeah, and they didn't find one of them. Oh no, they found them separately. Well, they, they found two wrecks, but they uh, but they apparently either it depends on what what side of the story that you ascribe to. One of them would say that they couldn't differentiate that there was actually two planes in the wreck because of how severe the wreckage was. They couldn't say it was two planes, or the case was that they found one plane clearly crashed 160 miles away from the other one, even though they had collided to cause the incident. Weird, very weird. You got to think maybe. I mean. At the very least, maybe there was a uh, malfunction with their compasses or with their equipment. I mean, it would have to be some, I mean, to, to a degree to crash those two things together. It wasn't just like driving two Mack trucks along the highway and then you blow a tire. I mean, there's so much space, so much communication, and these things are so expensive and so important um, that I can't imagine them just bumping into each other like that over such a big airspace. But that's a Bermuda Triangle for you. Yeah, it's, it's just too weird. They say Barbados isn't bad. She says I'd love to see Bermuda. And I say, woman, are you mad? Bermuda Triangle. It makes people dance so 
December 5th, 1945. We're going back a little bit, uh, six months after the war ended. Mm -hmm. And we've got an experienced combat pilot named Charles Carroll Taylor, who had 2,500 flying hours, mostly in the Grumman Avenger. Um, Which is the plane that is the star of this tale. The Grumman Avenger. So you guys probably know where we're going with this. If you are anyone who's aviation or anybody who's interested in the paranormal or... or uh, The Bermuda Triangle. Um, this is Flight 19. Flight 19. Five Grumman TBM Avengers, and these are. I listen. It's funny. I listen to other podcasts, and most of them were wrong about this. It's not okay. a fighter plane. This is a. This is a bomber. Yes. Yeah, I, I knew that, but only because I was playing. I've played uh, Battle Stations Midway, and that's oh, why yeah, I know. we fucking played that game. Shout it's out not to a fighter plane. Midway, the yeah. best game ever made. <laughs> yeah, shout out to that so game. Good. Please it make another so one. Good. Or, or at least re-release it for Xbox One because we got to play that shit. That was great. It was a great game. We got to play um, that back, man. But yeah, I mean, I think that obviously the the layman might look at um, World War II planes and they might think that they look similar. They have a similar build to them. Now, when you look at a bomber versus a, a fighter, they're so distinctly different. It's easy to tell the difference in them. But back then, the planes were so similar just to just on the design, looking from the outside. If you went a little deeper, you'd understand they're much different. But I can see how the people have made that mistake. It looks kind That's of a- like a Hellcat if you don't know the difference between an Avenger and Hellcat. Like a Hellcat. Yeah. It's a little bit bigger, same color, more armor. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, probably a similar engine. They use the, uh, the Wasp engine, which is like a double radial. Um, and uh but yeah so other podcasts who aren't aviation savvy they all said it was like a like a one of them said it was a fighter jet literally said that i was like "Hmm, definitely not um but but the grumman avenger is is quite similar in role to the fa-18 hornet of nowadays this is a carrier based uh uh, bomber or torpedo bomber that could shoot down another airplane if it had to Mm. it still has the capabilities to fire on other airplanes but its primary focus was bombing and particularly torpedo bombing naval warfare yep exactly so when you're practicing using this thing you're gonna have to do a lot of flights over the open ocean because its main job is flying over the ocean and and the flight that we're talking about today flight 19 is a training flight with five of these planes going at the same time led by lieutenant charles taylor and they're supposed to do a navigation exercise to fly out into the atlantic taking off from fort lauderdale hit a couple of checkpoints Come on back home and land. And as we find out that the tale goes, and as we know from the Bermuda Triangle, it does not end the way that they expected to begin with. Exactly. So, so yeah, before we before we hop into the story, uh, we're going to, like Dylan said, we like to be a little bit more savvy on our podcast. We're not just a couple of guys shooting the shit about airplanes, acting like the Avenger was a fighter plane. Come on, we do a little more research in that. So we decided to bring in... Um, a person who is, has experience with aviation and has flown planes as recently as last week. Uh, he's not a military pilot himself, but he's went to school to learn how to fly and to learn how to be an air traffic controller. So we're going to bring him along and talk to him for a little bit. You folks asking a couple of questions about aviation, asking what he thinks about flight 19. And then we're going to break down flight 19 for you guys. And then we're going to decide for ourselves what the hell we think happened and uh, what went wrong with the whole thing. So we're going to throw to him now. It's going to act like uh, it's just the same as now. We're going to pop it right in there. You'll see us talk to Doug Fiorentino about Flight 19 and about what it's like to fly a single prop airplane in the Atlantic Ocean and over Florida. Take it away, Doug. All right, now time to talk about 
the most interesting, in my opinion, and our favorite of these cases of the Bermuda Triangle disappearances, and that is Flight 19. That's the whole thing that got us started on this journey of wanting to look more into the Bermuda Triangle. And for that, you know, we love to have guests on this podcast. We decided to bring in a person who knows um, almost as much about planes as Dylan does, and maybe even more about being a pilot as him. And that's uh, Doug Fiorentino. You mind saying hi to us, Doug? Hey, how are you guys? Joe, Dylan? Thanks for letting me be here and kind of honored to be on my first podcast, quite frankly. (laughs) Well, we're glad to have you on. The honor is all ours, truly. I'm really excited to to talk to you on here, and I'm glad that you you wanted to be on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us, Doug. Hey, Dylan. You're welcome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So a couple of questions for you, Doug. So um, we know that maybe this all got started because you went to Daniel Webster College in New Hampshire. Is that correct? The now defunct Jan- Daniel Webster College. Absolutely. That was way back in the day. Uh, in the mid 90s, I started in an aviation program up there. Um, and it was kind of like a combined program. It was air traffic control and you could fly if you wanted. And I was in the air traffic control program and I learned to fly back then. So um, unfortunately, it's not a college anymore, but um, I don't know if my degree means anything or it's even a degree anymore. <laughs> I but think anyways, it still counts. <laughs> I think but anyway, yeah, that's where I went. That's cool. What did you, what was the first plane you flew? The first plane that I ever flew was um, a Clyde Cessna 152. So it was the two-seater trainer that Cessna developed. Um, and then um, the school actually had some what they, it was a French built cap 10. It was an aerobatic plane that they, they put into their program. And then they had some uh, motor gliders. So they had some gliders that actually had a motor on them. So you didn't need to be pulled up by another airplane. You could just spin the prop and go up on your own. And then they teach you unpowered flight and that kind of stuff. But I never got that far in the program because I switched to air traffic control. So what I did is I just flew the 172 until I got my license. I mean, the 152 until I got my license and then progressed to the 172, which is a four seater, same, same type of, airplane as the 152 but just got four seats nice. we'll throw up a picture now so everyone knows what that looks like so we can kind of picture it going forward there it's pretty good cool all these things that's cool yeah. Doug. thanks for sharing yeah so sure. um yeah so now that we've got our aviation expert on here um <laughs> <laughs> that's right see everyone on the show is an expert besides us so you, you don't have to you can feign modesty all you want doug but you <laughs> that, that counts as an expert to us <laughs> So yeah, I thought right. we'd ask you, ask you a couple of questions just about aviation before we get into Flight 19 so we know what okay. we're looking forward when we actually tell the story of what's going on here. Sure. So my first one for you is what are, what are some of the reasons why planes end up going uh, down in the first place? Is it mostly pilot error? Is it sometimes malfunction of the, uh, the plane itself? Or what do they teach you that these are the things you should look out for when it comes to being safe up there? Well, some of the stuff that happens um, that causes plane crashes is one, it is pilot error. It can be a safety issue where you didn't pre-flight the airplane correctly, or there was something wrong with the airplane, you didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. Or there could be a malfunction in, uh, if you're flying under just instrument flying, if there's a malfunction in the instruments, or you get disoriented, disoriented how do you say that actually? Disoriented, yeah, disoriented, yep. Disoriented. Um, with the instrumentation that you're flying under, under bad weather, Mm. um that's a problem and that's that i mean you could actually fly into a mountain and it's called controlled flight into terrain where you don't even think you're low enough to fly into something some type of you know mountain or a hazard like an antenna or something that's in front of you and you could actually do that because you're so disoriented so 
Um, a lot of times it's a combination of stuff. It's pilot error, it's weather conditions, or it's just um, the airplane's too complex for you to fly and you're flying something that you shouldn't be flying. Um, that's mm -hmm. kind of what happened with um, uh, uh, JFK Jr. He was flying a complex airplane in bad weather. Oh, okay. So, so that's kind of a combination of uh, too many things at the same time. There's a lot of bad yep. news there. So yeah, he wasn't yep. prepared for it. And then you have bad weather added in there as a recipe for disaster. In other words, it is, it was, he, it, it was um, when he took off from New York to go to uh, Martha's Vineyard, I believe or Nantucket, one of the two, yeah. but to answer your question. Yeah. I mean, it can be a combination of things. Um, weather, uh, complexity of the airplane, um, um, or it could just could be pilot error. So, Joe, you got some more questions for Doug? Because I got, I got a couple, too, as well. I'm excited to ask. Sure, yeah. Uh, do you have any idea about why a compass would malfunction normally? Obviously, there's always a chance that it's just broken in the first place. But a lot of the times we're looking at these stories in the Bermuda Triangle, compasses that are working regularly under normal circumstances seem to not be working properly in that area. Maybe it's just a timing issue that it's just that wrong place, wrong time. It just happened to malfunction there. But... I, I can't think of why uh, exactly a compass would malfunction like that um, and stop working in the middle of a flight. Yeah. I mean, when the, the things like the, the only thing I could think of is there's some kind of magnetic issue in a certain area where it affects a magnetic compass. It affects how that compass actually um, operates. And there has been, you know, some speculation in that area of the world where there is some type of, um, disturbance magnetically um, when it comes to, um, you know, instruments. They're saying that, you know, there's some kind of what's called ocean flatulence, that there's methane gas coming up from the ocean, potentially that affects, you know, instrumentation. I don't yeah. know. I've never had a compass fail when I was flying. Um, mm -hmm. I know that there's been, a, you know, erratic behavior of a compass when I flew once, because depending on where you're turning from the north or the south, the compass either lags or spins ahead of where you you actually are. So, oh, for instance, it's almost like it's turning, overcompensating. When it overcompensates it. itself. So you got to kind of take that into account if you're using a compass when you're turning from, say, north to south or from south to north. Um, other than that, I don't really know what the what the Avenger had in, as far as instrumentation, um, mm -hmm. but I do know there was redundancy built in, and there was compasses there was several yeah compasses they have multiple the compasses event. on board every avenger yeah so, so it has to be more than one failing at the same time right or all and i don't know planes. if they had a uh what's called a directional gyro or an actual gyroscope that helps you that you when you're on the ground you essentially set that to the compass heading and it's a gyro and it's a little bit more accurate so i don't so know if they had that but um that's all i can think of joe really so you're right on topic of like one of my questions. Um, so <clears throat> when you set a heading, cause like the whole, a, a big part of the whole story with these guys in flight 19 is that, you know, they go from A to B to C to D to E to F and then back to, to like Fort Lauderdale. Um, and they set a, they set different headings based off of, um, you know, what direction they want to go in like 050 or all in a 360 degree matter. Is that all magnetic or is there some other way? Because again, you think the airplane's here and it goes in 360 degrees this way and you set a heading based off of, you know, north, south, east, and west. That's all magnetic? It's all based on the, on the magnetic compass. So before you take off, um, you actually set, um, like, because I have a directional gyro, I'm going to set my directional gyro that looks like a compass um, 
to whatever the magnetic compass heading is on the ground. And usually you're looking at that when you're in the air to make sure that they're, they're kind of close. There's gonna be a little bit of variation, couple couple of degrees off, but, but back then um, it's all magnetic headings. Um, and it depends on how they're actually navigating. So what I was reading, and I don't know what you guys research that you guys found, but when I was reading on flight 19, it was basically essentially about the compasses and about the instrumentation. I don't know what else they did to try to figure out where they were. Did they use what's called pilotage or did they have a map and, and look at the terrain on the ground and use that? Um, did they use other type of form of navigation called beckoning where they used the map, compass headings, wind variation and that sort of thing to, to set where they were going? I'm not so sure. Uh, but yeah, that leads me in. I was actually just gonna ask you that specific question though, if you don't mind. What is the difference between pilotage and den reckoning? Uh, as far as getting where you're going to be going and keeping track of where you are as opposed to, you know, just plotting the course beforehand. So this goes back a while, but if I remember my definitions, pilotage, what I used to do, when I think of the definition of pilotage, I'm just looking at a map. I'm looking at a map and I'm looking at what I see outside under what's called VFR, visual flight rules. And that's all I can fly because I'm not instrument rated pilot. Mm -hmm. So when I go up um, in the olden days, I just had an actual map. Like you get a AAA essentially. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's called a sectional map. And you just look at a map and you, you go back and forth from point to point based on what it looks like outside. Dead reckoning is you use the map, but then you use all kinds of other calculations. You calculate um, your route of flight. You calculate the wind along that flight. You calculate uh, magnetic variation based on where you are in the world. There's some kind of variation um, based on magnetic north. Um, and you calculate, like I said, you calculate winds, your direction of, of flight, and you put all this into a calculation and you can figure out how long it's gonna take you en route to get from point A to point B or to some checkpoints that you have along the way. And then it'll, mm -hmm. it'll actually um, allow you to, to figure out your actual time of arrival or your ETA. So when you get up there, you can get your projected calculations and then you can actually see how long it actually took you from point A to point B based on timing. And that's essentially dead reckoning. So it's taking a lot more data points than just the map and looking around and it gets more of an accurate picture of when you're going to show up and what you're supposed to be seeing at any given time. Just kind of more checking in, more like a, a radar that sweeps once every minute or a radar that sweeps every second, the more information you can take in, the more you're going to know where you are at any given time and kind of orient yourself better. And that's uh, a, yeah, I mean, that's a really good analogy, Joe. I mean, um, yeah, you're taking in information to make sure that you're on, you're on the course that you're on, the course that you're supposed to be on. The winds could be different than what they were projected to being. So if you're off course a little bit, you can correct that by, um, you know, knowing your airspeed and what your ground speed is going to be and what your true airspeed on the airspeed indicator is. And you take that all into account when you, once you get into the airplane and in your flight planning um, as part of a dead reckoning type flight planner. Now it's GPS. You put in the GPS coordinates, hit direct to, boom, it tells you heading, it compensates for the wind, um, and it'll tell you how long it's going to take you to get there. Wow. So. Yeah, every time I've ever flown uh, in the right seat, it's been um, it's it's been basically just looking out the window, picking landmarks, and just moving from there to there to there. Mm -hmm. um, and it's actually been kind of stressful too, because the pilots that I've flown with are like, you need to also be just be looking for a place to land. So basically, the next the next strip, the next runway, the next this, you kind of just pick different locations, kind of like they do if they fly, you know, to Europe. You stay as close as you can to airports the whole entire way. That's exactly right. Yep. Yeah, that's um, how it's been for me. 
I got lost my first time I went on a solo cross country. They're called cross countries because they're like 50 miles. They're more than 50 miles from your home airport. I got lost. I was flying from, uh, what did I fly from? Nashua. No. Yeah. Nashua to Albany, New York. So I went over the, the Berkshires mm-hmm. and then I was flying from, um, Albany to Bridgeport, Connecticut. And that's where I got lost. Um, because Albany air traffic control told me to, to do a couple of turns before I resume my own navigation. Once I resume my own navigation, I had no idea where the, where the hell I was. You off. And I tried to just now, you know, throw the dead reckoning on the, on the seat, look at the map. And if you go to Connecticut, you'll know Bridgeport, Connecticut and uh, new London, I think Milford airport kind of looked the same when you're a student and you got, you know, 20 hours, 25 hours behind you. And you're shitting a solid gold brick because you don't know where you are. <laughs> Stressful. You know, I mean, that's essentially what happened when I was coming into Bridgeport. They're like, you're not coming into Bridgeport, dude. You're you're <laughs> probably over in New London. I'm like, oh, yeah. So just tell me how to get to Bridgeport. I said I was a student pilot. I didn't, I was lost. I didn't know where I was. You got to admit it. You yeah, don't yeah. want to admit it. At that point, it, it, the pride has to go out the window or you're right. going to be in bigger and trouble. I landed just... in Bridgeport and, you know, got a, ba- went, got a Coke and went to the bathroom and said, man, I'll come home now. Mm-hmm. it happens it happens you know and it's an uneasy feeling because you're like shit where the hell am i so i can't imagine five of these guys were there five of the avengers that were out there yeah there's five avengers and there's 14 uh airmen total yeah i mean i can't imagine what they were feeling um you know yeah it's gonna be something and before we get on to like uh kind of the course and the other details there's one thing that we didn't mention so and and i want to know if you have this on your airplane or have ever used it before. They mentioned a bunch in the story, something called the YG or IFF. Um, and its purpose is to triangulate. Have you ever seen or used one of those or what's never heard of it, never seen it. I mean, I felt kind of I feel kind of stupid because I haven't seen it or heard it, but no, I mean I the only navigational it. tools we had were the VOR, very high omni range um radio signals. Um, we had um, a non-directional beacon, which was like a radio beacon. You could actually tune in to a radio station and um, that you knew of and you could kind of like figure out where that sounds coming from because oh, it'll, it'll kind of tune into that yeah. um but other than that when i started to fly i mean unless this terminology has changed and it's the actually the same thing unless this y and i, I forgot what you had said dylan yg or iff um, yg or iff if that's something like a rudimentary vor or a non-directional beacon like an ndb it could be. I just never heard that terminology. So I, yeah, I, I, all I, I, I also don't know what it is. Um, but all I do know is based off of the story is that it's um, if you turn it on, um, it it helps other airplanes or air traffic control t- uh, triangulate your location. Uh, so it's probably kind of like what's called the transponder nowadays, mm-hmm. an ASB uh, ABS transponder, which now it tells you. I mean, back in my day. It, it kind of told, it gave you a, a, a signal, but now it tells you altitude, it tells you heading, um, it tells you traffic in the area, all that good stuff, these these newfangled transponders, so. Very cool. That's good to know. I only have uh, two more questions before uh, sure. we head on. Dylan, do you have any more questions to ask? Um, you mentioned a story about being a little disoriented based off of the way things look up there. Um, have you ever had any, what are some other interesting experiences you've had while in the air, whether it be seeing cool aircraft or something you didn't really recognize, ever seen a UFO, anything? Yeah. 
Um, a UFO doesn't mean a saucer. It just means something right. like a bright light. I don't know. I When Pease Air Force Base in Portsmouth, New Hampshire was actually active, um, I was actually cleared when I was doing one of my student cross countries up to uh, Portland, Maine from Nashua, New Hampshire. Um, I actually got cleared over Pease and saw a couple of um, uh, Air Force bombers. I think I saw like a couple of B-52s. Oh, that's cool. Um, that's cool. On, on the apron. And I believe there were FB-111s at the time. I didn't see a B-1, B-1B, but I saw, I think, an FB-111 sitting on the tarmac. And I got cleared over there so I could fly right over the Air Force Base. They knew where I was. They had me on radar. Um, another interesting thing that happened is I actually went off the runway once. So, like, people, oh, you know, God. watching this podcast are saying, who the hell is this guy you got on here? This, you know, jabroni. <laughs> That you know uh, gets lost and came well, off the uh, runway. Is, you know? <laughs> well, we didn't I ask you say, all. The, uh, go ahead, go ahead. I can say like I have successfully taken you know people flying and, and we've come back safely. That's what um, I was gonna say. You don't tell all of the the boring stories where it was perfectly <laughs> safe and perfectly decided the whole time. Those aren't make for good stories. So if we could tell those all day, I'm sure. But right. you know, everyone has a couple of mistakes. What are you gonna do? It's life. So I was a student pilot up at Daniel Webster, Dylan, and. Uh, uh, essentially I was almost called a stage check. So we had to do these stage checks in the air to get to the next level. And it was a nasty crosswind. Uh, they only had one runway at Boarfield, uh, three, two, one, four. And, uh, coming in, I told the, the instructor that was testing me. I said, I can't handle this wind. It's too much. Can't handle it. He's like, you got to do it. So I did it landed one wheel, you know, first and the other wheel second, like you're supposed to in a crosswind. And, uh, couldn't handle it. The airplane went off the runway and luckily I didn't hear, I didn't hit a runway lights with one of my uh, main landing gears and, or the nose wheel. We just went right off the runway. The prop is spinning now on the grass. And I just wow. looked at him and said, I told you I couldn't handle this. And he had to be the embarrassed guy, you know, taking <laughs> what the student, I tell you, yeah. you know, everybody knows, right. That, I mean, the campus had 800 kids for, for goodness sake. And like, everybody knew that there was a plane that went off the runway. So, um, <laughs> Luckily, that summer, somebody that was an experienced pilot landed a warbird gear up and broke the prop. So oh. that's a little bit, you know, more intense than me. So I felt better about myself at that point. But yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway, those are the experiences I've had. No UFOs, though. Never saw that. Never saw anything like that. Okay. All right. Those are awesome. Thanks for sharing. Right on. Yeah, thank you. My last two questions are just, uh, what are some of the issues that pilots experience with a small single prop plane versus uh, something like a commercial jetliner, those jumbo jets. I mean, there must be a difference between flying the, the two of them. Is there, is it that weather affects them more, that wind affects them more? I know that usually it's a bumpier ride for the smaller plane versus a large plane. Is that yep. the long and short of it? Yeah, that is true, Joe. I mean, um, that's kind of what I thought off the top of my head uh, right away when you asked the question. It's a bumpier ride because you're at lower altitudes. The jets can fly above the weather. Um, if you can fly the small planes, like a, like a Cessna 172 or a, a Type of Cherokee, a PA-28 or something like that, or any type of small airplane, single engine piston airplane, you can fly in instrument conditions um, if you're rated and if you're rated to fly and the airplane's rated to fly, but it's harder to do because you're doing it all yourself. Um, and it's, it's a very, you've got to be ahead of the airplane when you're flying instrument flying. Um, when you're on a big jet, you've got two people, you know, man or woman or women next to you, um, and they're sharing the duty. So they're sharing, you know, the flying, they're sharing the, uh, the communication duties, whereas you're flying a small plane, you're doing everything yourself. Right. A lot of small planes now have autopilots where big airplanes, it automatically has an autopilot. 
And some of the autopilots and some of the big airplane can actually land the airplane itself. They can actually come in zero, zero weather, meaning zero visibility and, um, you know, zero ceiling, meaning, I mean, not zero ceiling, there's just, there's no, you can't see the runway essentially. And they can, and the airplane can land itself. So, um, yeah, so small plane can't do that. So um, those are some of the differences. Well, Plus yeah, it's I mean, easier, it, they can handle more wind too, actually, when you land. It's easy to land. Yeah. I mean, the more technology, I guess the, the best thing you want to do is try to take all the variables out of a flight. And if you can automate the most of the uh, procedures, you have less and less chances for pilot error to happen or for, you wouldn't consider a pilot error if you have zero visibility, but the plane can still uh, fly itself either way. That's pretty phenomenal that they can yeah. Uh, develop. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think of a couple of stories. Uh, Doug mentioned um, uh, people just flying into mountains without even knowing. Like your yeah, visibility. Crazy. And I uh, <clears throat> uh, hiked Camel's Hump Mountain in Vermont. And the whole purpose was to find a crash B-24 that crashed right after or during the war, after the war. It just, mm-hmm. they're fine. You know, B-24, Doug, I think, is that the two engine or the four engine? I always get the 24 and 25 mixed up. I think that's, oh God, now you had to ask that question, didn't you? I think that's a four <laughs> engine. I think. Um, yeah, because one kind of, like one of them is nimble and fun and right. the other one's right. big the workhorse or like hard you know like flies like this the whole time yep dog and and the b24 marauder and the b25 liberator uh, yes i think that's what they are i don't remember which is which but it's the 24 and um exactly happened snowstorm pilots all didn't even know they died just wow last thing you thought is that we're just cruising along and mountains right in front of you Yep. Yeah. And so they uh they they removed most of the the wreckage from there but the one of the wings in, in the whole entire thing is still there and it's close to the top really? and you pretty much have to walk over it i was like looking for a crashed airplane like oh, i don't know maybe it's it's been 75 years maybe it's like under dirt and i was like i have a feeling we're probably gonna have to like literally climb over this thing if we if we find it and right, enough, right. We, we turned a corner i was like that's it <laughs> there's no question <laughs> no mistake in that That's zero mistaking that that is a wow. 30 or 40 foot airplane wing like, wow. no question <laughs> sorry maybe it, no what 60 feet i don't know but it's very low. that's crazy that, that's, yeah. crazy. that's craziness yeah, but they they all unfortunately died they just hit a mountain didn't even right. know right didn't even know it mm-hmm. I mean, uh, that might be better off than uh, being stuck in a mountain with a blizzard with a broken leg, though, if you have to pick the either one of them. I'd like the challenge rather than just not even knowing. (laughs) (laughs) You survivor, man, braver than I. I'd rather just shut off the lights and not have to try to worry about uh, getting frostbite. (laughs) Shut off and that's it. (laughs) Like that. I hope we don't have to find out. If anyone here is getting a B-24, let's hope we don't have to live this out. Of course. course. Yeah, Yeah, you don't want that to ever have to happen. I always think that when I'm in the the airplane where I get in the the emergency exit row and they ask you, like, are you willing to perform the task? I'm like, sure, I'll try, but I'm pretty sure we're all going to die anyways, so it doesn't really matter if I can do it or not, right? Maybe I can do it. (laughs) Yeah, you can do it. We'll see. It's It's easy enough. And the, and the person most behind you, as like, long as you're not a kid, yeah, in right. panic mode, yeah, I'm freaking out. So, yeah, I just had one last question for you, and it's um, and you can take your minute to think about it, but what is probably your favorite feat you pulled off of, of flying a plane? Something that you impressed yourself with, uh, that you're kind of proud of, and say, like, oh, yeah, when, when I did that, uh, that was pretty good, you know, even for you know, being modest about it, but it was pretty good. Uh, probably just recently, probably like two, three weeks ago, first mm-hmm. time I flew a Cherokee, um, and What's a Cherokee, tell us what a Cherokee is. Uh, Piper Piper Cherokee, which is PA twenty eight, low wing, wings on the bottom. Wings on the bottom. Um, never flew, never flown, uh, never flew a, 
um, that type of airplane. And it, and it handles a little bit differently. Um, there's some different characteristics in it. Um, I had a really good instructor that I was with. He, he's got a lot of time and a lot of different planes. And it was kind of windy and the landings were really good. But, you know, um, I, I actually did stick the landings really, really good here in Orlando. But again, um, you know, what happens when you land is you get, you get really good and you go through periods where you, you're landing really well. And then all of a sudden you'll hit one landing and it'll just completely you think you just ripped the, the landing gear off the airplane. So I just happened to be in a good, a good time frame where, you know, I was landing the airplane, both high wing and low wing relatively well. And then, um, you know, a month before that, I couldn't land the plane if he, if, you know, I, I mean, there was one where I just, I literally, you know, hit the ground hard. I, I was like, shit, I think I might have an insurance claim here. But, um, <laughs> but you know, when I, when I flew the Cherokee for the first time, I stuck, I stuck the, the landing. So I was pretty proud of that. Nailed it. Actually, we'll put, we'll put the link up um, so people can check it out. There's a fully edited video with GoPros on the wings and inside the plane with him and his instructor, instructor rather. You can see him actually doing that exact task. I'm glad you said that one because the folks, if they want to watch it, they can see for themselves. Not easy to do, but hold it up. Yeah, now Ludix is, uh, he's a good guy and he's a good instructor and, uh, and uh, you know, he helped me through uh, landing. And the last part of that actual video is crazy what he did with that airplane. So, yeah, I would I would encourage anybody to do that because he basically pulled the throttle at 650 feet or whatever, did like a 180 degree turn, um, almost 180 degree turn, and uh, landed on a on a runway. So um, it was pretty impressive. So I'll bring it around, simulate that we're doing like a left turn out here. Love this move. And man, we're doing a left turn out, and then all of a sudden, uh oh, ah, what's just happened? All right, we lost the engine. Okay. <laughs> 73 knots is what I'm going for. Nice little accelerated stall there. There's my 73 knots. I'm bringing it all the way around into 3-1 if I can. We're looking good. I know I'm a little bit high, but I've got a, a pretty big hefty turn to do onto right. uh, onto final. But at least I'm, I'm going directly towards, uh, towards the numbers or going towards the runway. I know I've made the runway. First notch of flaps, second notch of flaps. I know we're going to be high. I can bring my last notch of flaps in. And just bring it in three one. We made the runway, man. Wow. 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 Here it is. Nothing saying that it has to be pretty. Good morning, It's just gotta be safe. Airspeed's perfect. We're in line for the runway. I'm pleased with that, brother. I'm happy. There we go, no power. Just bring it in. Let it let it settle. There she goes. What a move. <laughs> Love that move. That's sick, brother. I'm happy Love with that. Love that move. Oh, three, two, zero, four, two. Wow. Yeah, I would, I would encourage you to watch a video. You were in the plane for that? I was. I was watching it. It was It was crazy. Like, um, we we're in what was called the traffic pattern to land on a certain runway. They cleared us to land on a different runway because we were trying to, he wanted to, to practice this. And we were about 650 feet and uh, 700 feet, somewhere around there. And um, pull the throttle back, unpowered flight right into the uh, right into the runway. It sounds kind of like ah, that's not a big deal. But at 650 feet, when you have no power, it sounds like a big deal. <laughs> it's a big deal. <laughs> Doesn't sound you know. And I, I'm watching this, and I'm like, yeah, this is uh, this is pretty cool, man. This is uh, this is why you uh, you're good. So anyway, yeah, yeah, it was good. So, and that dovetails pretty well into the the story of Flight 19 because those are the kind of things that pilots have to undergo as part of their training to make sure that 
anything that comes their way, they're prepared for it because you never know what's going to happen in the airplane, if, whether it's instruments failing, whether it's the plane failing itself or unforeseen events. You're going to have to train all the time to be that well. That's why it makes sense that he would say, hey, if you don't mind, I have a little time to practice this maneuver, which um, people who are obviously fly for the Navy, the Air Force would need to practice things like that all the time because they're going to be in extreme situations. And yep. you don't want to go down just because of something like that happened. You want to be able to pull it off. And that takes a lot of practice. You're exactly right. I, yeah, you're exactly right. Very well said. That's Very awesome. well said. So, Doug, so how long has it been since you've flown in the Bermuda Triangle? Uh, we went over the Bermuda Triangle in a Southwest 737 last year. Um, we flew from Orlando to San Juan. So coming from, I think that's part of the triangle. Cause what is it? Miami to Bermuda yes. to, to Puerto Rico, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we, you can't avoid it. If Bermuda you're going triangle. from Florida to Puerto Rico, you have to go through the Bermuda Triangle. Over. Yep. So yeah. Any weather? I mean, no weather clear the whole way. Clear. Any clear air turbulence? No CAT. No. CAT. <laughs> <laughs> nope. None. Actually, it was uh, actually a smooth flight. We there were people wearing masks, and this was right before COVID. We we're like, why are these people wearing masks on the plane? Little did we know. No, yeah, I, I had the same thing. <laughs> I, I probably I flew through just the corner of the BT um, in a uh, what is uh, so Spirit flies Airbus. So I was in like an A330 Neo. Um, off of the, the the east coast of Florida, going into Orlando in really like a week or two before the travel ban for COVID, and wow. like ten percent of people on the plane had masks on, and I was like, uh, I don't know. Um, but yeah. I was with my brother, and we were my, my half of my family was in Orlando, and um, we uh, yeah, I remember that too. Same thing. I was like, wow, this, the mask thing's happening. People are doing it. The girl next to me was coughing. I was freaking out. <laughs> right exactly and your family was in orlando yeah my uncle bill um joe's really yeah, my uncle bill my yeah. cousin dominic um and uh their their girlfriends and husbands and wives and my uh my dad these are my dad's brothers and my uh my dad's other brother scott and his family and his kids and their kids and everything they live in ocala wow yeah well, oh cool. we were just in ocala and not not too long ago yeah not yeah, too ocala, far from my uh, my uncle scott's been there since like the mid 80s Wow. Does he have horses? Uh, he, I believe he, he, he's retired now, but he has, he, uh, he's worked on a horse ranch his entire life. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's big time up there when it comes to yeah. horses. They, they do a lot of training. Yeah. Yeah. He was a trainer and then he kind of did the whole, the whole horse thing. Yep. Um, but cool. uh, yeah, it's a cool place. We were there for, I was down for a wedding. My cousin got, uh, it was like, they got married in Vegas and then came um, and had their thing at my uncle's uh, place in Ocala, and it was, it was a blast. Love that. Miss Florida. Yeah, cool. Excellent. Yeah, cousin in Tampa. <laughs> I forget about that. It's time for you to come down then at some point, right? It is. Again? Uh, it's been a year, and I'm looking forward to it. So. Yeah, exactly. I don't blame you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, some of the best food I've ever had in my life, and I was in Orlando. Miss it. And then um, Joe probably knows it too, but for, for we're a little off topic now, but um, – but when I worked, that's, that's part for the course for the podcast though. Feel yeah, free. It is. This all comes in, but, um, but I used to go to Orlando like, uh, every month or every other month for work. For work. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. I was down at the, uh, little do they know there's a IndyCar track in Orlando that IndyCar never got to use, but they built it for like an IndyCar series in the 60s, 70s or 80s. No kidding. Yeah. Magic Kingdom parking lot. Look left. Next time you're there, you're going <laughs> to see a speedway. You'll never, you never even knew it was there but it's real. 
there's an actual no kidding. Water track. Yeah. There used to be an airport there. I know that near the yeah. monorail between Epcot and Magic Kingdom, but I didn't know there was an IndyCar park. Hmm. Yep. IndyCar uh, track. Wow. Yeah. It's a mile oval. And uh, and they do um, like uh, oh, it's too bad. Loudon already took the Magic Mile as their name. Obviously, the Magic Kingdom oh should have the Magic God. Mile for that. Magic track. Mile, right? Yeah, they this should have the that. Funniest thing that is exactly who should have been the Magic Mile. Disney, absolutely, Freaking yeah. But um, yeah, so we got out there for work because we hooked up all their. They've got st- actual NASCARs and then like Ferraris and stuff, and we put all. I did the communication systems in them, but I used to have to go down there all the time because they never worked. So, no so, kidding. Yeah, cool. Very cool. So I have a lot of time in Orlando. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. So. Um, oh, nice. Where, where well, I mean, uh, Doug, thanks a lot for coming on and talking to us about um, planes, lending us some of your legitimate knowledge that we can kind of leech off of and bring it into our podcast and meet a more legitimate podcast than we usually are. Nice. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and Doug, while you're here, what do you think happened to these guys? Yeah, playing. what do you think happened here? We got it, we've got so we got a seriously experienced guy. Yeah. Uh, he the 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 um uh, Charles Taylor. Yeah. Yep. Um who was a combat pilot in the Pacific who had a couple of uh problems um you know in the history of of ditching airplanes in the sea in the Pacific. Um and then a bunch of other uh you know relatively experienced with a couple hundred hours. Um what's the deal? So the speculation that when I was reading, and it sounds kind of interesting, and it sounds very plausible, is that he originally was stationed in Miami, then he went to Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale. Now, I don't know if this makes any sense, because Lauderdale and Miami are pretty close together. Um, But the original route of flight, he did all kinds of things like you were saying, Dylan, he had, you know, several different segments of the flight, but apparently in a couple of different things I read that he, he got so disoriented that he thought the Bahamas could potentially be the keys, meaning Key West, you know, the, the archipelago from Miami down to Key West. Luckily, because they have a record of those transmissions, we know what he was thinking on each step of the journey, where if we didn't have that, we'd we'd be anyone's guess, but we at least know that at some point in the journey, he was convinced he was over the keys, which is right. one of the reasons why he got so off course. Because if you think you're south of Florida and you're actually far east of Florida, you know, that's a whole different animal. And I think that's what happened. I th- it Combined with the, the known malfunctions of their instrumentation, i.e. the, the, the uh, compasses, if he legitimately, and the keys look differently. So I don't know if he could actually see, you know, below him. I don't know. The weather was, was suspect, but... Yeah. Um, if he could actually see the keys, the keys look dramatically, di- dramatically different than the Bahamas. I mean, they're just the, uh, the geography is totally different, but it doesn't matter if he got disoriented and you're making bad decisions, you're sweating, you, you know, you don't know what you're doing. You got, you got other guys that are relying on you. Right. And he flew Northeast. Like you said, Joe, he was South of, of the peninsula and he thought he was South of the peninsula and, and flying Northeast from the keys would get you back to, you know, the, the Florida peninsula. Yeah, that's what he did. And someone can if you're over the Bahamas, you're going to get in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean if you do that, which is going to be an issue, which is an issue. So disorientation, not knowing where he was, instrument malfunction, and then obviously the lack of fuel, because now you're burning fuel and then, you know, then you're 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 done. So that's what I think. I think he just became so disoriented that um, he didn't have the instruments that he needed and he was disoriented and he just didn't know where it was and he didn't know what to do. So 
that's my uh, that's my two cents. It's a well thought out conclusion to the story of Flight 19. Right on. You guys can uh, hash it out and see what you think, and I'll watch the, <laughs> we, I'll watch the podcast to. to see what happens. <laughs> to see what you guys think. What we think. That's we'll awesome. That's exactly right. So hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I of really course. do. You're welcome. Thank you um, for being on. It's an honor. And we love to have experts on here as much as we can. So we uh, we appreciate it, Doug, and uh, and uh, maybe we'll see you next time. Okay. Cool. Thanks again. Absolutely. Take care, gentlemen. Have yeah. a good one. So, right, <laughs> that was great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was pretty informative. It, it, like I said, he adds legitimacy to the to the podcast. And Dylan knows a lot about airplanes, but it's always good to have someone else in here who knows what his uh, his jargon around that and talking about Flight 19. So now I think we'll hop into the nitty gritty each individual subject of what actually happened on Flight 19 from some soup to nuts, as they say, or from uh, nose to tail, more of a airplane based metaphor. Yeah. So. If you don't mind, I'll start off on this one because there's some. Please, good. let's so, get going. So we've got the Grumman Avenger, five of them, led by flight leader, United States Navy Lieutenant Charles Carroll Taylor, with 2,500 flying hours, mostly in that aircraft, and some of those hours in combat in the Pacific. That's a lot of practice. Kind of thinking, how many time, how many hours do you have driving in your particular brand of car? It would be a lot of driving to get up to 2,500 hours, and that guy has. Not only that much experience in the air, but most of it on that particular plane. So this guy's no spring chicken, and he knows how to fly this thing. And that's why he's leading this training exercise outside of uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, into the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, exactly. And as as mentioned, this this exercise is super simple. It's it's a combination of tactics and navigation. Um, they're flying east out of Fort Lauderdale to Bermuda, drop a couple bombs, head north um, to a checkpoint head west to another checkpoint north to another checkpoint fly back to fort lardale it's no, pretty that's simple. the idea it's a, it's, it's a simple idea yeah, they've done this type of uh training mission i'm sure taylor did this exact training mission probably multiple times himself and yeah. many people who are flying out of fort lardale uh would do this exercise as a way to get used to the idea of flying missions like that and get used to flying the avenger in, in conditions that would be um conducive to that part of the world yeah, yeah, exactly. And and this seems pretty simple because it's a majority of 90 degree and 45 degree turns. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so very uh, right angles are, as it were, like that. The 45 degree, 90 degree, 180, it's all on those dials where you're not, you know, not a lot of room for uh, screwing up because you're just going on those different hands of the clock, basically. And it makes it a lot easier to orient yourself in the mission. Exactly. And, uh, and we didn't mention earlier, but uh, uh, Captain, or sorry, Lieutenant uh, Taylor um, was also an instructor in this type of airplane as well. So this is a, this really generally is an experienced guy. Yeah. Um, so it starts off training mission mixed with navigation and bombing. Um, and uh, it really comes down to one conversation. Um, and, and like we mentioned uh, in the, uh, talk with Doug, we do luckily have a record of the conversation going back and forth between Charles Taylor and the radio tower at Fort Lauderdale. So we can see step by step what was going through his head. And we didn't know the exact location of the planes because we didn't have GPS tracking at the time. So we were not exactly sure where they were. But upon looking back, we have a pretty good idea um, of what actually went down there, even though we don't have a, any video evidence of it or GPS evidence. Yeah, exactly. We don't know. Um, this is 1945, so we lack a lot more information. Right. But they did have enough technology. They did have triangulation tools. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and they did have um, other people in the air to help identify where they are. But it starts off with a couple conversations. Again, things should be in routine. Um, but uh, an unidentified crew member asks uh, another crew member um, and asks one another student um, for his compass reading. And uh, that that student his name was last name was Powers. And uh, just to, for reference, Powers um, was his name was EJ Powers, uh, United States Marine Corps. Um, and his gunner or the guy in the back seat was Howell Thompson. Um, yeah, those sound like a couple of fucking flyboys I've ever heard one. AJ Powers and Howell Thompson. Howell I'll Thompson fly with them. George Paonessa. Um, right. says that this is a three-person aircraft. Yeah, that's how we end up having 14 people on this mm-hmm. this training mission where you'd imagine that mostly you'd be one person flying a plane. There's five guys on the mission, but there's actually 14 all together. And one of the planes was not um, fully crewed with three people. Exactly. So EJ Powers is the pilot. Hal Thompson is probably the navigator. George Panessa is likely the gunner, um, Marine Corps. Um, mm-hmm. And and what happened? It's all start off with is uh, one of the uh, someone asked pa- uh, Powers um, for his compass reading, and he said, "I don't know where we are. We must have got lost after the last turn." And keep in mind, this all five of them stayed together the whole time. They didn't like break off. That's right. They were all so, grouped up for the entirety of the, the training mission. Yeah. And then um, another pilot, uh, last name Cox, transmitted. This is FT-74, planar boat calling powers. Please identify yourself so someone can help you. The response after a few moments was a request from the others in flight for the suggestion. Um, And uh, and then Captain or Lieutenant Taylor came on and said, FT-28, this is FT-74. FT-74 is the flight leader. What's your trouble? Mm. And... Powers replied, both of my compasses are out. Both of them. So like they like Doug mentioned, there's a redundancy, redundancy even with just the navigation. So even if one compass wasn't working, they had a backup compass and both compasses weren't working. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. How's it going on um, there? So, and he replied, I am trying to find Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I'm over land, but it's broken. I'm sure I'm in the Keys, but I don't know where, I don't know. So I guess, sorry. Um, uh, this is Taylor's reply. This is the flight flight leader. Yes. Uh, I, I am trying to find Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I'm over land, but it's broken. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure I'm in the Keys, but I don't know how far down and I don't know how to get to Fort Lauderdale. So I want to talk about this segment for a second. Yes, uh, we should definitely break this down yeah, because this is, this is where the trouble super begins. Super important. So the this is so weird because again, they should have, they, they confirmed all everybody dropped their last bomb basically in mm-hmm. the Bahamas. Um, which is like 40 miles west of Miami. Right. Um, maybe 70 miles. We'll bring up the map just for the folks to, so we can kind of see a picture yeah, of what, what's going on here. say 70 miles because I don't think it's... But funny. yeah, so an easy way to figure it out is that Florida, if that's our center, uh, the Bahamas is way out east of that and the Keys is directly south of Florida. Actually, now you can even drive to the Keys. They built a bridge right there. So it's that close to Florida. And a person who has that much flight time and instruction out of Flor- Lauderdale, like uh, Charles Taylor would be able to recognize the Florida Keys relatively well because he's probably flown over them hundreds of times. Well, my first thing is the only thing that makes me think that this guy thought he was over the Florida Keys after their last turn um, dropping bombs. Because it was like, hey, we, he had to ask permission to drop his last bomb, drop the bomb, and then mm-hmm. this all happened. Um, you made a major mistake to think you're in the Keys or, you're, or, or your exhaust valves are fucking blocked or something like that. Like, mm. like... Uh, you shouldn't that is so far from where you are supposed to be 
Yes. It's insane. So for for him, a, a seriously experienced combat pilot um, who has 2,500 hours flying this airplane is an instructor, thinks that he's hundreds of miles where he is. Within Way off. Minutes of where he should be. I mean, if you were if you were aiming back, you'd hit Fort Lauderdale well before you get to the Keys, even just if you were on the right course timing-wise. Never mind the fact that, you know, you're completely south when you think you're supposed to be all the way out east. Insane. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's it's really like saying, uh, hey, we're supposed to be in, Bo- like, you, you're supposed to be in Boston and saying you're in Philly. I mean, it's yeah, mm-hmm. It's not worse. Quite yeah. Right. So, um, not- and again, this is a taking our, our concept of, odd events happening we always say you don't always want to have one witness now we have 14 witnesses and they're all flying in this formation and they're all completely off course together so we have more eyeballs more brains on this and somehow they believe or at least taylor believes that they're over the florida keys and they should be headed towards fort lauderdale they they must have missed it on the way there that's the case yeah um it's totally crazy so um so then this FT-74, which might have been a flying boat, informed the, uh, like the, flight the group. controllers that this, this flight might be lost. Mm. Uh, and then advised Taylor to put the sun on his port wing on his left side. Yes, um, and that is a very important part of the story, too. So if you, you put the north. sun on your port wing, for us uh, normies, that's, that's the left wing of the plane if you're sitting in the cockpit. If you put the sun on the west side, or on the, on the left side, the port side, you know, we, the, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. It's a good way to know that we're going to be heading west and you'll keep that um, as part of it. So if you're in the Keys and you keep the sun on your, on your port wing, you'll make sure that you're heading straight up north because that way the sun's to the west of me. I'm headed north. In no time now over the Keys, I'll start to hit southern Florida. I'll go over Miami and it's just a short hop, skip and a jump to Fort Lauderdale from there. I'm home free. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But if he thinks he's over the keys when he's really over like uh, some other um, K or uh, or another group of islands, there's mm-hmm. a real problem here. So he might yeah. have taken the advice and said, "I'm put the sun on my port wing um, when that's when you're north of of the Bahamas, not in the Florida Keys." Yeah, and that's what I, I believe that happened. And looking back now, it seems to be that way that he was actually over the Bahama Islands. And if you keep the sun on your port wing, if you're in the Bahamas. The, the only thing you're hit is not going to be Miami. It's going to be more Atlantic Ocean. If you go straight up, you can uh, probably hit part of Nova Scotia or maybe even the North Pole if you keep heading straight there with enough fuel. So if you're in the Bahamas, you do not want to go north to get home. You want to go far west. And instead, he's headed north. Yep, exactly. And then then just to make things worse, the next step is that he took a heading of um, 030 degrees, which... Um, would 360 degrees be north? I mean, at that point, I mean, what would 030 be? Um, I think that's, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't understand like that. In minutes, it's like it's like three minutes past midnight. I think 030 would be. Okay, yeah. So that would be very close to just being. I, I don't know that. I'm just assuming. Um, yeah. Um, because he wanted to make sure that he's not uh, flying over um, uh, basically the Gulf of Mexico. So over. Right. Because at that point, you don't want to be heading so too far west. Where, because yeah, now, yeah. now you're heading over the Gulf instead of. He thinks know, he's on, now. He thinks he's on the west coast of Florida when he's yeah. actually in the Bahamas. So he's, he's even now farther than the Keys. He believes that he is, uh, like I said, on the Gulf Coast of Florida, which is even farther west. Where we think that now, looking back, that he might have been even farther east. Never mind over Florida. So this is this is getting way out of whack at this point. He's heading the totally wrong direction. Really out of whack. Um, but the crew members nearly are- the opposite. 
The crew members are panicking a little bit. They're telling him to fly east. No one really knows what's going on. Um, mm -hmm. Taylor can't switch frequencies. Um, he wants to keep his planes intact. The IFF, which is like a triangulation device, isn't isn't on or isn't working. Um, um, he was supposed to, yeah, he's try, trying to turn his transmitter for YG, which is that triangulation thing. Yeah. Um, uh, and he advised his 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 crew to change uh, due east for ten minutes. Um, and then somebody in the crew said, damn it, if we could just fly west, we could get home. Head west, damn it. Mm -hmm. um, so that particular uh, individual, actually looking back now, had it right. Because if they are, are that far east and they could just head west, they would eventually hit the mainland Florida. And from there, it would be a lot easier to triangulate where Fort Lauderdale is and use the, um, the navigation tools like Dead Reckoning to find different spots, find out your airspeed, you'll be able to find your way back home just fine. But if you're in the open ocean and you have no landmarks to tell you where you are or if the landmarks you do see, you believe are completely different landmarks, you're screwed. So at some point there, um, this guy had it right that we should head west and we'd yeah. be able to get home. Exactly. But, but these guys are, we, we can't overstate this. They are following the command. He's the flight leader and he has the most experience. I mean, it's almost like stepping on a line. It, it's it's easy to look back and in hindsight be like, why wouldn't you guys just pull off the group and say, this is the way to go. I'm not going to get lost here, but you're trusting this guy. And as we'll find out for the rest of the story, they're they're a unit and they're a, they're a military flight unit. You don't just go abandon your leader and you don't abandon your crew either. You you uh you fly together no matter what happens. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're allowed to at this point if they want to. But two words describe everything you just said. And it's military discipline. Mm. Um, that's Fall why in line. Yeah. So like, and then weather started to get worse. It started to get darker. Radio contact became intermittent. And yeah, now uh, things are starting to get extra dicey because at some point here we're, we're lost. We're lost, and it's crazy. We still got plenty of fuel, but we're, we're we're totally overspending how much time we need to spend on this mission. But when it starts to get darker and the weather starts to get dicey, the radio transmissions start to get more sporadic, and it starts to be harder to navigate. Now we have no longer uh, a confused flight crew we have an issue here it's about to be um, a big problem. issue yeah survival this, this is, is yeah this is now a survival issue they need Life to get or home. death matter and you know this is <clears throat> we're running out so of i have here at 1700 hours just to kind of um get the, the, the actual time record here so 1700 hours if 1200 hours is noon now we're at seven o'clock at night and it's it's no, in 17, uh, 1700 hours is five o'clock oh i'm sorry yep. yeah you're right five o'clock so so it, it's, it's starting to get darker December, but not so December. dark but we're in december and it's only um it's only uh, a couple of weeks until the solstice which is the darkest day of the year so at that time it's getting much dark. darker five yeah. o'clock yeah so every hour that ticks away now is getting more and more uh dark and like i said they don't have gps and it's not like you can shine a flashlight when you're on an airplane uh, the lights on an airplane are to show other planes where you are not so you can see better um on the land yeah, there's and no headlights on those puppers. So the transmission at 1700 hours is quote for Taylor says, we'll fly 270 degrees west until landfall or running out of gas. So this is the first time where they are verbally communicating that they're worried about the amount of fuel that they have in the planes because they've been flying much longer than they they, they expected. They didn't even expect to probably run out half a tank. They, they, they take off fully fueled quick flight exercise. Of course, you always have extra fuel in case something goes wrong. But at this point, it's starting to be an issue if they're going to have enough fuel to make it home. And they start heading uh, west, which is the right thing at this point, but um, it doesn't always end up that way. Yep, exactly. And and, um, <clears throat> and so uh, at that point at 1804, so we're, we're probably 30 minutes later than when Joe last said something. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Taylor, yeah, 30 minutes to an hour, somewhere around there. Not not long yeah. after, but long enough that you'd be getting nervous <laughs> after that much time and still not knowing what's going on here. It's still an issue. Yeah, these these boys, these these Avengers are thirsty. They don't. Uh, oh yeah. They don't just uh, sip it, you know. So he radioed to his flight, holding 270. We didn't fly far enough east. We may as well just turn around and fly east again. Right. So now, now he's doubling back of the mistake and saying, "Oh, you know, it's yeah. kind of like getting lost in the woods. You go down the wrong path, and you say, I think we saw this tree. We, we went in a circle, but actually, you're still headed in the same direction. They're completely uh, messed up at this point, and the fuel is becoming an issue. Might as well turn around. This is getting dicey. Yep, exactly. And um, so something's really fucking wrong with this guy. And um, <clears throat> so at this point, it's 1820. So 87, 620, 620 p.m. Got to um, be getting dark at this point in Florida in December. And his last message was received. Um, and uh, his I last, have the last his transmission last at, received at, at 19. Yeah, 1904. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, he was heard saying less than an hour after that. Tell us, yeah, what's, what do you say, Joe? He said, uh, all planes close up tight. We'll have to ditch unless landfall. When the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we'll all go down together, which is the standard operating procedure for um, a crew like that. Because if you're going to have to go down, it's a lot harder to find one plane and one man alone than it is to find a whole group of planes. And it's part of that mentality, that discipline, that training. If one plane goes down, we all ditch together. We're all stuck together in the ocean. It'll be a lot easier to find us. And if we work together, it's a lot easier to survive out there. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we'll all make it home safe. So you don't just leave one plane behind when they ran out of gas first. When one plane goes down, the procedure is we all ditch together and we all go in down together. Yep, exactly. And and on top of that, you guys can help each other survive. If somebody right, a as a- exactly, yeah. So sharks, um, you name it. Oh man, nope. yeah. So, um, so that's that's not where the story ends, which is the craziest thing. Um, there is no contact, no information. It's they're completely disappeared. It's it's as of today, yeah. uh, the day after St. Patrick's Day in 2021, mm-hmm. and not a not a freaking windshield has been found from these things. Of course. So to follow the rest of the stories we have, that's what happens to Flight 19. We have no evidence of it ever happening. We have no evidence of any of the 14 members any of the Avengers, the last transmission we have is him saying, if push comes to shove, we're going to have to do this. But we don't even have a transmission of him saying, we're going to ditch now. We're approximately here. That's the last transmission we have. Maybe it's because the radio signal is cutting out because of the weather. We don't know. That's the last information we have yeah. from Flight 19, though. And as Dylan said, nary a, a propeller blade that we ever, I've ever found there. But we do know, but of course, we know that their compasses were not reading accurately. Yes. And they that takes five planes that couldn't have the fact. compasses reacting that way. Um, yeah. So, but of course, you got to go looking for them now. That's the last transmission. You don't hear from them. You can't just yeah. leave them all out there to die. You got to go look for them. Yep, exactly. So that night, a PBY um, seaboat uh, was seaplane, um, which is one of the most famous and beautiful airplanes of all time. We'll put a picture up of both the Avengers. The PBY, because the PBY went out, didn't find anything, came back, nothing happened. Um, but then they sent out two uh, uh, PB5Ms, not the PBY. This is the PB5M mm-hmm. Mariner. Yeah, I have the two PB5Ms are actually out in their own um, navigation training mission, and they diverted them in order to exactly. uh, actually yep, do a search and rescue for them. Yeah. Yep, exactly what happened. So, um, so yeah, so at first it was the PB5, PBY Catalina mm-hmm. um, just departed to search for Flight 19 and guide them back if they could be located. Yep. Um, and it, it, nothing came back. So then, yes, those Martin PBM Mariner flying boats 
um, were on their own train flight, diverted back, like Joe said, um, to go find them. And and uh, and then they found them and everything was fine. Right. They, they, yeah, they, right. they landed and they're, they're glad they all landed together. They actually were pretty close to Fort Lauderdale, almost made it. But we already know the Bermuda Triangle by now, folks, to spend an hour in the podcast. Now, what actually happened, Dylan? What actually happened? Um, Walter G. Jeffrey of the um, PB5M um, and his and Harry, Roger, Lloyd, Charles, Robert, Wiley, uh, James, John, Philip, James, Donald, and Alfred. Twelve people plus Walter um, vanish. Wow. Like nothing ever happened. And again, to this day, that entire flight crew that went to go search and rescue the Flight 19 also, without a trace, we've never found any evidence of what wow. happened to them too. And the only explanation... And they went looking specifically for Flight 19. Yeah, and the explanation on the report. And, and no wreckage, no nothing, no anything. Completely missing. Same day, same time. Again, another no no radio transmission saying we're going down. We're approximately here. Nope. No we don't have any information. No whatever it is. And nope. the U.S. Navy said that it just exploded. Wow. Well, that's insane. And 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 the thing is, if it just if it blew up, that's that's terrible and awful. And there's a lot of people in there. But um, there would be there had to be something. It had yep. to be something before. Yeah, and also I, I have one. Uh, the, the USS Solomons is an escort carrier reported losing radar contact with them uh, before they ultimately went missing. But that was the last actual uh, data we have of ever knowing where they are at any given point. Yeah. And so was- the Solomons it started. It actually started with the with the tanker, the SS Gaines Mill. Okay. Uh, yeah. And they apparently said that they observed flame. Well, they observed flames from an apparent explosion. Um, about a hundred feet high and burning for ten minutes. Wow! Um, at a certain position, and then Captain Shona Stanley reported unsuccessfully searching for survivals through a pool of oil and aviation gasoline. Um, the escort carrier USS Solomon um, reported losing radar contact with an aircraft at the same position, same time. So um, it might have just blown up. Yeah. Um, yeah, it very well could have been. Both reporting uh, ab gas and explosions and radar contact being lost with somebody like that but mm-hmm. but there's still no no debris no bodies no nothing you think you'd find something especially if you witness the, the the fire and smoke of an explosion that you'd know where to look but yeah uh, yeah Mystery continues. So I think it's time for us to really do the thing we usually do is trying to parse all this information out and see what we really think of it. And there's a couple of explanations of why all these disappearances are happening. Some of them are more grounded in you know, everyday events that happen, unfortunately, with um, sailing, uh, using ships and using planes, flying. And some of them are a little bit more odd uh, than that. So we think we should talk about the possible explanations for the disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, I agree. And I, I would like to start with like the, the more kind of out there possibilities. Yeah, and, let's, let's do it. It's it our wacky, weird uh, podcast because yeah, there's a lot of explanations the, there that are very strange. Yeah. Um, the first one I want to talk about is, is, is a super well-known, he's on a million different TV shows, um, experience from a guy named Bruce Gernon. Um, and he survived what he thinks Flight 19 went through. 
And Bruce Gernon is an instructor. He's a pilot. He's been a pilot for a very, very long time. He has a lot mm-hmm. of experience. Um, and he was flying a Beechcraft Bonanza. Um, and, and that sounds like a good time. <laughs> yeah, it is. And Bonanzas are pretty sweet airplanes. Um, and the reason being is they're just super unique and cool and they have a V tail. So for oh. a private aircraft, you look at the, anytime you see one that has a tail like this, mm-hmm. um, instead of like, so Doug's flying a plane that has a tail like this in it, and it has a part in the back that moves like this or this, mm-hmm. like y'all left or right. Mm-hmm. Um, the Beechcraft Bonanza has it like this and it has pieces here on the back that go do the same. Oh, that's thing. interesting. Yeah. Um, it, you know, the rudders, I guess. Yeah. The rudders. Yeah. Two rudders. There's two of them. Yeah. Um, so it's like an A10 Warthog only, uh, like this. So, yeah. Cause um, the A10s go, they go up like this, right? right? They still yeah. move from side to side, but they, they're not, it's not just the one rudder piece. Yeah. Just the back piece, not the whole thing. Just the, there's like the rudder, which is a, a quarter of the back of it moves this way. Right. Gotcha. So, um, Beechcraft Bonanza. Um, <clears throat> he's, uh, this is a, He's flying with his father in 1970 and um, having a good time, getting some sandwiches or something cool. And uh, this is his theory because he went through it himself. Right. Um, He said an elliptical shaped cloud started forming ahead of ahead of both of them um, about three miles off of Andros Island. Um, And before he could get out of the cloud and engulf the plane and it created a tunnel around them. So he had this like electromagnetic tunnel of clouds. So mm. like and zero visibility at that point, I would guess, when you're surrounded uh, like that. Zero visibility, but he could see that he was in a tunnel. It was a tunnel shape of like oh. sparking, like le- lightning, dark, swirling tunnel that he very was strange. in. Very strange. Very um, strange. And they were probably not exactly thrilled at that moment. I'd be shitting my pants. No, he's shitting his pants and he his, his, his uh, dials are going wacko. Um, and he started having a feeling of zero gravity and uh and again all of his navigational systems started to collapse so um it's only dis- dis- uh, the, the the cloud dis- disintegrated over right over miami beach um mm-hmm. and uh and he was again spotted on radar um but by then uh they traveled 100 miles in 30 minutes which is which is uh which is significantly less than the time that takes 30 minutes should not get you 100 miles in an airplane like that you're going 100 and probably 120, 130 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's even crazier about another story is that um, it's the exact same story um, by a, a pilot with last name Jensen, um, that he was only at 150 feet above the ground and went through the exact same thing. Um, this was a, uh, the cloud formed at like a crazy, 150 feet is, you know, 15 gorillas tall and that's very that's treetop level and <laughs> yeah yeah 15 gorillas I yeah um and uh after 11 hours 600 miles away from where he was lost earlier um and he was uh he was heard from again um and then he vanished again without trace really yeah so 11 hours, 600 miles away, um, he was he was heard from and then vanished and never heard from again that after experiencing the same thing. Yeah. I mean, so those especially the, the speed of travel and that, that whole thing of it is much less explainable than the other instances of, you know, maybe a ship. Um, for example, you know, that uh, the Avengers or the, the, the I'm sorry, 
the PBM fires, seeing the, the explosion and things like that. I mean, obviously, we don't have any evidence afterwards, but you can kind of have an explanation for this maybe particularly could have gone this way. Maybe there was an explosion, but that rate of distance changing and that kind of situation is a lot harder to explain what actually went down there. That's not a usual thing you can explain away with um, bad weather. Yeah, no. Yeah, exactly. Bad weather for all of them. Yeah, it's just crazy. So, so first, first theory is this electromagnetic magnetic cloud time warp uh, wormhole thing. Hmm. Could be one thing. Um, that's my first thing. I'm, and then second, I guess, would be a wormhole entirely, right? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe. I, I, like I said, this, this section of the world is so uh, disturbing and weird. But as far as I understand it, wormholes are, I mean, they can be multiple different sizes because of the, the nature of them. We think that most wormholes that exist in the universe are um, so infinitesimally small, you wouldn't even be able to see them with, with your naked eye. And even with a microscope, it'd be difficult to see them because they're just these tiny um, rips in the space-time continuum that we believe connect to other sections of the, of the universe. And even though we can see them as a giant gap, that might be you know, uh, 50 light years or 1,000 light years from end to end, if you could travel through one of these wormholes, theoretically, you'd be on the other side instantly. So you're basically cutting through a giant swath of space in an instant. And if something like that existed on Earth, you'd be able to travel that fast. But because of the fact that wormholes are so rare, and if they were the size of an airplane, it would take an immense amount of energy to make them that size. The amount of energy you'd need to make a wormhole the size of a car um, you'd almost need uh, the, the power grid of the entire United States to, to power that that much force to keep a wormhole like that open. So as of right now, we don't have the technology to do that. If it's some kind of anomaly that's going on in space time and it's happening itself through a, and some kind of other source we don't know about yet, maybe it's that. As of right now, we could never produce a wormhole that is large enough even to, to drive a, a Camry through because it would just take too much energy to do it. So I don't think that those are existing on Earth to that level because there'd be such a large disturbance that it'd be unlikely for us to um, to not pick that up. Um, but I'm not I'm not ruling it out. But yeah, I just think that's pretty I mean, unlikely. Like, so wormholes um, were really discovered by Albert Einstein. He was the mm. one who theorized that he called. Yes, them he theorized them first. He theorized we, them we, as yeah. the Einstein-Rosen bridge, um, mm. and said that these are maybe possible um right math this like any great math. scientist which einstein certainly was he guessed something was possible before it was later proven to be possible and einstein did that on multiple occasions and like you said wormholes is one of them we've now proven that they are possible but when he came up with the idea of them in theory we had not yet proven they were possible he just theorized the way the math works out the way i understand space-time which he is basically the father of understanding that space-time is one single fabric of the universe it's not two separate things crazy um he theorized the wormholes could possibly exist in the universe and we now know that they most certainly can yeah yeah and it was described on the history channel as like here's a sheet of paper and you have point a and point b and a wormhole is literally space and time is here and all it does is to connect them like this so it's just here to here like it's that doesn't make the, sense that is the perfect me, yeah that's, that's the perfect it. example of what it's like it's a it's a yeah. visual example because the way we visualize it with a piece of paper, we have a, a two-dimensional object that's just length and width. And if you could bend it in a way that it becomes three-dimensional, then you could travel from this point to that point at the same time almost instantly. But wormholes 
are taking a three-dimensional object, which is the universe we live in, and introducing a fourth dimension. So you can't visualize it physically because we're human beings. We can't understand that. But if you could possibly bend the world in a way that third dimension would bend to a fourth dimension or a separate dimension like that, if this paper was 3D and you could still do that, that's what wormholes do in our universe. So it's very hard for us to comprehend, but that's the simplest way to describe them is to take one degree less of difficulty and just make it as flat as a piece of paper because trying to describe it as it actually is, which is bending three-dimensional space and being able to you know, just pop along the edge like that, that's what a wormhole is. Uh, that's why they're so fascinating. It's crazy. And who's to say that these storms or electromagnetic storms, they're, whatever they're calling them, um, we don't pick them up because it just looks like a giant uh, typhoon or something, you know, yeah. um, or a hurricane. It, it could be a wormhole for all we know. We don't know, you know. Okay. We probably know for the most part, but but micro circumstances like this where there's like little incidences like a Piper cub going missing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, maybe. It's hard to say. It definitely makes it... Um more possible for things like that to happen to, to travel to that degree. And even though we don't, we don't know that a, a wormhole has ever taken place on planet earth or that meteorological circumstances like lightning storms or electromagnetic storms, or even magnetic interference, the kind of thing that could disrupt your compass that completely depends on magnetism to work could um, produce that. We don't know that could happen just because we've never seen it on earth. But like you said, it doesn't mean it's impossible. Yeah. Exactly. Never seen it. So what do you think? What, what else do you think is going on for, for crazy shit? Uh, the other supernatural explanations I've heard is that uh, it kind of goes back to that Christopher Columbus first sighting of the lanterns going up and down in the water um, is, is that or seeing objects in the sky like these spheres or lights is that some people think that it's a UFO explanation or that it's actually not just identify unidentified flying objects, but alien, <laughs> but alien spacecrafts that are either you know, transporting or abducting these people. And maybe it, it's hard to fly to find, you know, crews like Flight 19. But if you look back and you start to see those those schooners that are drifting by themselves or even that yacht, it's just people are disappearing off of the ship and perhaps they were taken up by uh, a spacecraft. And that would explain why the ship is relatively untouched, but yet all the people have gone missing. They didn't swim away, you know, unless they drowned, but they wouldn't do that on purpose why would you jump off a ship when you have a perfectly well working ship there i have no comment <laughs> you got to keep no your comment sealed. on this topic <laughs> so i've heard that explanation but i think my favorite one uh on the degree of interesting or how interesting it is rather is the one that you brought up briefly earlier with that road that is uh, or what we believe to be a road constructed on the water the most interesting one to me is the idea that the location of the lost city of Atlantis is actually within the Bermuda Triangle. And the fact that all these people have gone missing is to try to hide the location of Atlantis. So if people get too close to it or they start to disturb the Atlanteans, they actually use some kind of, um, I don't know if it's supernatural, if it's, if it's magic, if it's just technology or what it is, but they try to, you know, disappear peoples that come too close, kind of like an Atlantean defense system. I'm going to add some value to that. I don't think it's an, uh, some sort of defense system. I just think that in the lost city of Atlantis, seen mm. here, seen we have there. This is made is that of coral, ivory. Oh, ivory! Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, 
we know Atlantis to be a like a super civilization that is technologically advanced way past their time, past their like time, which is potentially ten thousand years, like ten thousand BC. Um, they had some people think that an energy source um, that produced a lot of energy of some sort in this place, just just like Plato said, got basically sunk under the sea. Bimini Road is there. There's some other things around that area that are kind of a little bit interesting and that say it's a crystal or something weird that's manipulating energy might still be uh, giving off some sort of radiation um, that is producing an electromagnetic field or something or let's just not radiation let's say radiating an electromagnetic field from whatever the situation is here that is causing malfunctions in modern day equipment I mean, yeah, that really could be an explanation to it. I am obviously we got to do a um, a podcast on Atlantis, I think, because it'd be a really interesting yeah. topic. I'm unconvinced of Atlantis. I think it's more of um, an idea, and people like to take a lot of old text and say that it points to this mythical city. There's other I, I, there's other versions of this, like El Dorado, the lost city of gold, or um, you know, ancient cities that are written about, but are, we don't actually have any physical evidence for. And when you start adding in things like power crystals and energy and things like that, you obviously lose me because you're getting far away from what we understand science to be and start to get into like the magical thinking kind of side of things. And that's fun to, that's fun to dabble into. But um, the the idea of uh, power crystals, first of all, is surely a magical thing. We don't have any crystals in real life that actually emit energy in the way that they do in uh, things like Reiki. They don't admit, they don't, they don't, none of them admit energy. Mm -hmm. Um, or give off energy i mean even when i worked with telecommunications with dunkin donuts headsets Mm -hmm. all the all the base stations had crystals in them because they uh, are highly conductive conducting energy i see these are conductor conductive type of things so they think that back in the day earth had a different type of energy field that was more linear Hmm. and there would be super conductive spots like the pyramids like atlantis like whatever it is that could harness the energy of the earth naturally yeah be able to use that as like a an energy source to to power something Hmm. well i mean yeah there is you know so it's not that this is something minerals that conduct electricity well and and harnessing it yeah i mean uh, picturing anyone who has you know a a cell phone or or computer whatever uh, silicon is uh, a crystal in the same way that sand particles are crystals, but you know they're not exactly the ones that from the dark crystal, uh, the, the Muppets movie where you see the big purple crystal that has all the dark energy and powers in it. But yeah, I can see that if you break it down to that degree, yeah, it is yeah. conductive. Yeah, so um, that's, that's what I'm thinking on that, not magic. But but to to wind it to wind it back to, to both ways, uh, an example of a mythical city um, that was written about in a story and people um, believed was maybe existed but many modern um scholars believed it was mostly just a made-up tale and that might have never existed in at all is the city of troy written about in the iliad and for years and years there was no evidence that troy ever existed besides the story of the iliad and maybe other um oral history tales to tell of the, the city of troy and uh, that that actually all went down if it actually really happened it wasn't until many years later that they actually discovered the location of uh, the lost city of Troy and the castle of Agamemnon and all the ruins of that there. So even though for hundreds of years, it was perceived as maybe people believe it existed, but more likely it's a story like I believe Atlantis is where it's more of a tale uh, that maybe people are misunderstanding what it is or 
you know, word of mouth, things like that, but you can't actually prove it exists. But the city of Troy is a real world example of a mythical city that we believed might have existed, but we had no proof for. And then lo and behold, we have now found the exact location of Troy. And there's not a whole lot left there. It's not like going to visit Rome, but the evidence is still there that that's what Troy existed. And most experts believe that they know the location of Troy now. So it's not just in the story of the Iliad. It's a real city. It really existed. Yeah. Yeah. And Atlantis could be the next one that we talk about. Maybe. Um, I've been, we'll go, when we talk about Atlantis, we'll go there, but I've been to the most thought place that it might've been. And it's in Greece. Interesting. Yeah. I, I was, I woke up every morning looking at the volcano area that they thought it was in pretty cool. And Santorini. Yeah. Um, pretty sweet stuff. So, um, so uh, yeah. So as Joe mentioned, Atlantis aliens, um, uh, you know, different time warps through wormholes, wormholes. And stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of it for crazy shit. So now we have some like, uh, mm-hmm. kind of downer. How can we explain this for explanations that happen every day to ships and planes and things that maybe don't happen very often, but it could possibly happen to them to, to, uh, actually explain these insane disappearances and these, these shipwrecks and these yeah. plane wrecks. And, and some of these explanations really, really are solid. I mean, they really are, could explain the magnetic uh, field anomalies with the compasses and that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and multiple other things, but uh, we've got variabilities in the magnetic field. Very mm-hmm. possible. It does yeah. happen. I, uh, if, if there was any that, anomalies then the compasses wouldn't work that way, they're completely dependent on the fact that they, the magnetic poles in the earth are in a certain place and they don't change. And like you said, there's already, it, they, they vary so much that pilots and ship navigators have to account for that when they're setting up their navigation. They say there's something called true north, which is what we, we would say geographically is the most northern part of the planet. So if you go anywhere beyond that, you're going south in any direction. And then there's magnetic north, which is where the magnetic field of the earth's north pole is actually located. And that changes on a yearly basis. And sometimes it can be off as much as except 35 miles. And that's, that seems like a lot to us now, but it's not really a lot, a lot during, if you look at the entire scope of the earth, the earth is massive. 35 miles isn't that much, but 35 miles is a ton when you're navigating. I mean, have you ever done the thing where you try to, where you're walking on the sidewalk and you close your eyes and try to see how far you can walk without like stepping off the sidewalk? I have. Hopefully, hopefully it's no cars. I've done it too. And you start to realize when you're blind, um, if you walk even slightly to, to the side a little bit and you're not exactly straight, within five feet, you're off the sidewalk. It, it, all it is is a slight difference. In your mind, you're walking completely straight, but you're actually walking slightly to the side. And I think that if you have your compasses set to magnetic north instead of true north or anything that goes sour with that, you can easily go divert yourself off the path. And um, piloting ships and especially planes is the exact science to find out where you are. And if those degrees are even slightly off, you'll find yourself in a completely different place. And every single mile you fly that's slightly off, it's exponentially putting you farther and farther away from what you wanted to do. So if, if your magnet, um, your magnetic north is off or your compass isn't working, it doesn't take much to get you well off track very fast. And that 35 miles difference becomes hundreds and then even a thousand miles if you can fly that far if you're that far off so you need that to be perfect and if it's not you can get lost pretty easy yeah yep exactly um so that's one thing um another thing to make compasses spin is that it's it's a known fact in the area there's a high concentration in that five hundred thousand square mile radius or sorry a square mile triangle right. um, there's a high concentration of magnetite 
which is a uh, magnetic rock. Under the oh, I don't know what that is. Never yeah, heard. yeah, it's just a, 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 a magnetite might be an element. I'm not sure. I, I don't quote me on that. It's not an element. Not but, an element. Okay. No. Um, it's a type of rock uh, that is gotcha. magnetic. Um, we've got uh, methane bubbles, mechanical failures. I got two more, but what do you got, Joe, before I get into Now, I think that methane bubbles is worth looking into because I've heard of uh, possibly the Gulf Stream being a, a very powerful current in, around southern Florida into there. And if you're an inexperienced ship captain or if your ship is now up for the task it's almost like you said trying to paddle a kayak in in the bay in uh where was it portsmouth yeah i mean you can get you can get in a lot of trouble and, and try to expand that out to instead of having a kayak having a ship that's too small and you can easily find yourself adrift and find yourself in big trouble there and get lost at sea and uh people when they're lost at sea get pretty desperate and any number of things could happen at that point but I think that the methane hydrates is an interesting one to me because that's a, a phenomenon that is possible and we've seen it experienced in the ocean, but we've never seen it actually um, uh, take a ship down in real life. No one's witnessed a methane bubble taking down a ship, but basically there's natural gas within the different continental plates uh, all over the earth. And a lot of them are trapped under the seafloor. And when the gas escapes, it escapes in a large bubble and it rises up to the top. If the concentration of gas is big enough, it can be the size of a ship and maybe even larger. So they started doing experiments in Australia to see if it was possible for a ship to be capsized or sink if they had a bubble that large go up beneath them. Because in, in the ocean, naturally, or for the most part, you don't have bubbles that large. Even a whale burping would be just a splash in the water compared to that. But if these methane bubbles are as big as they say they are, they've done experiments to scale um, so they haven't done it with full size ships, but they've done it in a lab and they can, they've proven that a methane bubble or a bubble that large could capsize even a large ship if the bubble's big enough. So that could be one of the explanations where an otherwise, um, great sailor an experienced sailor could have this bubble come up, you know, change the pressure under the ship, fucks up your buoyancy. And once you're turned under, if you go down to the below the ocean floor, they're not going to find you anyways, especially if you ended up in, you know, the Milwaukee depth or one of the deepest trenches in the Atlantic Ocean. All it takes is a bubble like that. It doesn't matter how good you are at sailing. You get dragged to the deep. And I think that's might be one of the explanations of what happens to these ships. They just got really unlucky. Wrong place, wrong time. Picture driving on the highway at 75 miles an hour and a boulder comes and directly crushes your car. It's very unlikely. But if it happens, you're fucking screwed. It doesn't matter how good of a driver you are. <clears throat> Yeah, and on the note of buoyancy, there's another um, explanation that has been also proven to take down ships too, which is kind of unknown and more of a, a, a recent one is algae. Um, algae. Yeah, so a, a lot. Of, it is a hundred percent. You can go Google videos of this type of stuff for hundreds of miles. There'll be this like ridiculous algae that, again, it's not gonna. It basically, so if you imagine, um, imagine an icebreaker. This is the best way to describe it mm -hmm. um, in the North or South Pole. And, and that boat, it basically goes up, hits the ice, and then goes on top of it, and then it and breaks. It but if it, it doesn't break before that, the boat goes all the way on top of ice, and it can tip over. Right, because now it now it's at an angle. You need to keep crushing it. If you start sliding up, the yeah. more and more it's angled upwards, the less and less energy you need to turn it from side to side, right? Exactly. exactly. Uh, picture like how much it takes... If you're sitting in your chair right now, how much force does it take for you to tip to one side if it's completely flat? But if you tip yourself back, mm -hmm. 
it takes a lot less force to move it from side to side because now you're at an angle. So that takes only a little bit of force and you flip yourself right over. Yeah, exactly. And the only, so real world example, um, the only time I've ever caps, capsized in a kayak. Oh, okay. Is I decided um, there's first hand example, not just real world. Yeah, yeah, first hand. Um, and uh, I was in the river in the spring. So a lot of down trees because it's not cleaned up yet. And sure. it's really fun because you, if you're, if you've got a small enough kayak like I do, you paddle really hard and get up on the log or the down tree. Oh you yeah. Push yourself over it, and then you, you kind of hop over. right over. Yeah. Yes, you don't have to get out of the kayak. You can, you can get yourself over it, no problem. But mm-hmm. if you're drunk, it's harder. It's true, which is true for most things. It's true, and um, not podcasting though. Let me tell you. See? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I get up on it with my friends. They're all you know whatever it was, and I and I I just it did exactly that. It just put me on one side, and I just went right in. Right. Oh, blown, damn. Right yeah. in there. Not um, good. Because I just wasn't able to stabilize myself as much. Because it's it's easy to stay stable in the water because you have right. so you're much water around you. Water. But we have just you're on just a pole like this. You can move like this so much easier. Mm-hmm. Same thing with algae. So algae surrounds you. It changes the buoyancy drastically and wow. can cause you to tip over, and then you sink like a rock. Because that's interesting. Yeah, I, I did not hear about that one. That, that makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah, so that's an interesting one, and there's a whole documentary about that allergy. It's like it's not like this is a speculation. It's it's real. It's there. Yeah, and it's taken on smaller boats for for sure. So they're thinking mm-hmm. for larger boats, why not? Sure. Yeah, that's some wild shit. Yeah. Um, what else you got? But um, yeah, I mean that's basically uh, besides the individual cases that we could take step by step. I mean it's it's hard to maintain. You have to really dive into each one and see what are the information we know. Unfortunately, we don't know a lot about it. And for in particular, the USS Cyclops, it, it is theorized that um, not just because of the engine failure to begin with, but they actually took on much more weight than they were rated for. So it's things like that. It, that that's kind of what Doug talked about, where anything can happen. But if you don't, uh, you know, do your pre-flight checklist for for that ship, it would be don't overload the ship. And then if one engine fails, you're fucked over. And that might have been the same thing that happened to the sister boats, too, where they're just loading these things up with way too much and it. It got too dangerous and the whole thing went down. And when you're overloading a cargo ship, it's not the same as a kayak, but it can tip over just as easily. And that thing goes down fast. And all those people, unfortunately, um, don't have much time. I mean, it is scary to see you can watch um, controlled um, sinkings of, you know, Navy ships. And there's no one inside when they do it. But it gives you an example of what it looks like when there are people inside. And. For, that, for a ship that large and that buoyant, they can go down in a matter of minutes. And it wouldn't surprise me if in 1918, a cargo ship like that went straight down before anyone got off. And anyone who might have got off in time, they weren't able to swim to any of the islands in the Bermuda Triangle fast enough. And they just sunk to the bottom and uh, they were never found again. Yeah. Yep. Could totally be. I didn't do any research into water currents. Because, um, like, again, if you, if you go missing off of, like, most places, you probably will end up on a beach somewhere. Yeah, a lot of times if you're close enough to to the shore, you'll certainly end up right back on on the beach unless um you, like you said unless you're eaten by sharks or or there's more weight to you or you're trapped inside a metal object and you sink down with it. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of times you you will show up um the ocean has a weird way of putting a bunch of shit back on. Like what happened to the Witta when they found uh, the wreck of the Witta was exactly. because of all the the bodies and debris washing up on the shore. Yep. Yep, exactly. Um and uh, I mean, there's been so as you know, this has been researched by the government, the Navy, the Air Force, everybody else, and the Coast Guard. Yeah. And um, exactly what you just said, the 
U.S. Navy and the U.S. Coast Guard contend that there are no supernatural explanations for disasters at sea. Their experience suggests that the combined forces of nature and human fallibility outdo even the most incredulous science fiction. Yeah, and I have to agree with them on that fact because, you know, my usual self, I think there's usually always a scientific explanation for it. Even if we don't know it, it doesn't mean that there isn't a logical explanation for it. But this one has me stumped, man. Even though I think that for the most part, you can explain away a lot of these. And then a lot of times you can find the evidence for what happened. Like if you find those shipwrecks or those planes that are downed in the keys and things like that. But this one is tough because there's just so little evidence for it. And there's so little knowledge going into it that it's hard for me to say, bar none, this is what happened and that's it. I think it's more than likely that almost all of these can be explained by, you know, things like that, like uh, errors or severe weather conditions. But it, I, I will not say for sure that that's what happened because some of them are just so strange. I, I, I yeah. don't know what to say. Yeah. And, and as most things, I mean, like, um, uh, you know, we don't have all the details. We don't have the facts. We don't have right. every piece of information. Sometimes they're not releasing all that stuff. Sure. Um, this is one, yeah, where the nature and human fallibility is is quite overwhelming with evidence um even with flight 19 i mean the guy clearly one guy was a little bit whack and mm -hmm. confused and had some anxiety or something i don't know yeah and way. maybe and at least one of them but maybe even more than one uh clearly knew that they should have been heading west and just yeah. um fell in line kind of deal so. fell in line that's exactly it so um, but overall, the you know the, them reporting instrumentation failures or uh, discrepancies is like is quite real, and I think that sure. um, were they sucked into a wormhole, it's romantic to think that you know sure. the lives somewhere today, or they might show up, you know, <laughs> yeah, later later. They travel through time, and they show up next week, and they're the same age in the same planes, and they they just went yeah. through that wormhole and entered the few. Weeks. I mean, that'd be crazy. It'd be really yeah. Cool. And no one really knows, but overall, probably not. But um, probably not. But overall, there's pretty good evidence that there's a problem. Just like with the PBM five, um, you know, we have two witnesses that there was a radio transmission and an explosion in the air, and right. a have gas puddle in the middle of the ocean so that's probably good blew up. yeah still unfortunate that airplane and that airplane particularly was known to have some sort of gas ventilation problem where it could spontaneously combust which is crazy that, that they would let that fly with such a huge possibility that's, absolutely them. yeah and, and uh, the plane would go up like that even in a training exercise it's definitely dangerous i hope they don't still fly those things if that's the case but maybe that's the explanation for it i don't know I but don't, obviously I very strange because going off the tails of a strange thing like that that's what i love about that story not only did flight 19 go down the flight that was sent to save them went down too it, we don't know why that's the thing that's why it's like hey this there might be something more to this i don't know like fitting our rules of multiple people in multiple places seeing this right a lot like, of witnesses and uh, not a lot of evidence to, to figure out what actually happened. So, you know, that's, yeah, that's wild. Exactly. So who knows, you know, who I knows? hope to update you guys all soon with some more modern information off this stuff, especially as technology, we're going to get some answers somewhat soon for this. Yeah. Stuff, especially. Yeah, I, ho I hope that as we can de uh, search deeper and deeper in the ocean and get more of a picture of what's going on in that section of the ocean and maybe even explore, um, deeper in things like the Milwaukee depth that we might be able to find some of these shipwrecks and at least, um, be able to explain one or two of these missing cases uh, and at least understand it to some degree. Or maybe we uh, we finally find Atlantis down there where we can get deep enough. We'll see. I don't know. We'll find out. So could be pretty cool. But uh, what do you think, Joe? Wrap it up? Yeah, I think so. That's it. That's the uh, Dylan Joe Basement Podcast. We'll see you guys next week for 
potential list of important topics that we want to share with you guys. We're trying to figure yeah. it out at the moment, but we got a fee for you. So stay safe out there. Make sure you have more than one compass and stay in radio contact because we're going to want to find you if you go down. Yep, exactly. And, uh, and just be, be aware that if you do fly in the Bermuda Triangle as a private pilot, there are more than 10 reasons not to fly in there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you guys next week. I don't have a Madame de Voyage, you better believe I'm diving in uh, with those yeah. mermaids. I'd be like, yeah, all right. They have beautiful voices, so they're like singing to you, and they're just on this rock calling your name. I'd be like, <laughs> it's a no brainer. You just gotta go. On. Let me just park this thing. Yeah, let me just, you know, I'll, I'll be careful. I have to I have to check it out, though. I'd be stupid just not park to. park this thing real quick, get the old boat out there. I'll be right over there. Yeah, I'll be right back. <laughs> I wouldn't die. I wouldn't. Fine. You look like you're in the movie 2001. No, literally like, like, like the movie Moon or 2001 Space Odyssey where you're just like in the spaceship, like, because you were so white, like blue, you're blue. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But if you're drunk, it's harder. It's true. Which is true for most things. It's true. And, um. Not podcasting though, let me tell you. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Why would you jump off a ship when you have a perfectly well-working ship there? I have no comment. (laughs) And you're shitting a solid gold brick because you don't know where you are. Stressful. You know.